0: So uh, there's a little bit of a background that has to be explained before the exit. This is the year that the original Facebook-fueled uprising started. What was that, 2012? 2011. So we were finishing up school, and me and the brothers were sitting, studying for our finals, and they're like, man, you know, there there's a, there's a, a bunch of students planning on Facebook to have an uprising, and everyone's telling me man there's no way the egyptian army is too powerful the government is too powerful the secret police is way too powerful they've been capped down for so many years there's no way they're gonna be bold enough to do this i was like guys i don't know man it's, it really really seems like they're gonna go through with this and the the rhetoric that's being said uh they're definitely willing to sacrifice their li- their lives for this and it's definitely gonna happen so they're like no you're crazy a lot of my friends told me i was crazy And uh, fast forward, after the original protests begin, I go to the masjid, and nobody's in the masjid that I go to. There's a corner masjid by my house, and I see all of the, who I refer to the OGs, these guys are all over the age of 55, 60, the guys who write all the five prayers, some of the guys are even 70 years old, and I see them, they're kind of sad, they're, you know, and they're kind of stressed out so after I prayed Asr I still remember I prayed Asr and I said to them uh, what's going on you guys look kind of stressed out nobody's here they said yeah it seems like Hosni uh, Mubarak has opened up his jails and let out all the criminals to basically be let loose on all of Cairo or portions of Cairo so the protesters go back to their homes and they leave the area that they're processing in Tahir Square There are some other protests in different areas too so that was his tactic for people to go back to their homes. And he said that we have report now that people, those same people, those those people from jail are coming this way to where I was staying in, in Nasser city, Medina to Nasser. And uh, they're like, you know, we have to get ready for this. I was like, what do you guys mean we have to get ready for what? They're like, well, if they're coming with weapons, it's going to be pretty crazy. And there's nobody else inside of the masjid. And they were so calm about it. And I was like... Why, I was like, you know, I'm just asking, you guys seem pretty calm about it. You know, what's what's going on? They're like, no, you know, it's something we've been used to a lot of things and we kind of knew this was going to happen eventually or something. Or it can just be a scare tactic, you know. This is all they said to me. But he said, uh, you know what, just go to your house and get any weapons or anything that you can use as a weapon and lock your doors and we're going to have rounds where all the men in the house and on the on the streets, basically the neighborhood that we're responsible for, we're going to have a morning shift and a night shift. And one of the guys from the masjid is going to come to each block and to each home. Don't be alarmed. He's just going to ask you, What are your timings? Can you do the morning shift or night shift? And that basically means that you stand on the entrance of all the streets just in case somebody comes to protect the women and children. And that was going to be a fight, basically. So I said, Okay, hmm. if you guys say this, this is what we're going to do then, right? So uh, I was like, okay, let's do it. And uh, I went home, I told my wife, and I was like, man, I don't know how I'm going to tell her this. I told my wife, I was like, listen, we need to strategically put these knives or whatever we had. Alhamdulillah, we had a decent knife set, you know, away from, we had one daughter at the time, that away from daughter's reach, but we have to strategically put something in each room just in case. And then I have to have this, uh, you know, these rounds. And my round was the nighttime, basically, up until Fajr, from basically Maghrib to Fajr at night. And I would kind of just sleep in the daytime. And everyone had these alarms sounding if anything happened. And somebody was in the masjid, if something, if there was a scare, they would say, As salatul as salatul because everyone could hear the announcements of the masjid. So um, I would just be sleeping at night, and sometimes they would say that, and then we would come out in the daytime, but everything was mainly at nighttime nothing really happened in the daytime and that's when we heard about the news where just the people were patrolling all the streets every car that came in they were checking it to make sure there's no weapons in it because we don't know who's who right coming onto the street Mm. um so at nighttime that's when you know i actually got a chance to get really close to the egyptians because foreigners never really got too close to egyptians egyptians never got really got too close to the foreigners and hussein obadak's time if there was a foreigner that was getting too close to the Egyptians, then the secret police would come to the Egyptian and be like, why are you getting so close to the foreigners? So there was always that barrier between uh, brothers over there, even though we were praying side by side in the message that was still kind of uncomfortable, you know, because you always want to meet the brothers and some of them are really interesting personalities. I'm at night drinking tea, setting up little campfires on the, beginning of this, on, on the entrance of the streets, you know, talking with brothers. There was somebody in my building who was palestinian had no idea who was palestinian because i wouldn't really talk to him you know and we we're talking and people had really uh everyone is coming together and talking about their point of views of what's happening what's expected to happen sometimes we'd be talking and all of a sudden we'd hear a gunshot and then everyone get up and it was becoming very unorganized because people would just be running towards wherever the sound was and the street would just be empty so then I, there was a guy on our street who was from the army. I said, listen, man, we got to organize these guys is because every time a noise comes and that could even be a decoy. If this is a real attack, everyone's just going, there's like a hundred guys they are all going to one place. And like, I'm the only one standing there on the street. There's nobody else there. I was like, dude, this is so dangerous. This is defeats the purpose. So I told him that, you know, we should have two flanks, one on each side of the street and one in the middle and the middle flank never moves. And I was trying to plan all the strategic stuff with him. two streets down from us a few people got shot actually alhamdulillah there was a few people that came on our street from who were considered quote-unquote the criminals and alhamdulillah one of the guys on our street had a rifle and he scared that little group away and uh you know there were a few close calls nothing really dangerous happened to us so now Mm. while all this is happening my cousin calls me up and he says amir listen man you know what um i'm buying some tickets for you you have to come home uh i was like dude i can't you know i'm just here this is all gonna go away soon, and this and that. He said, "All right, consider it." I said, "Okay." So I go home, I pray istihara. The next night he calls again, and he says, "Listen, you know, you really have to get out of there. You're there with family." I was like, "Yeah, you know, I think it's gonna uh, all everything's gonna blow over. It'll be fine." And he says, "You know what? No, I'm actually buying tickets for you right now." And he said one thing. He said, "You know, if you were alone over there, that'd be fine. But you're there with your wife and your child." and if something escalates then you can't get out then you're going to regret it and there's something really interesting that happened as soon as he said the word escalate I felt like my istikhara just hit me in the chest I was like alright you know what reserve the tickets so I go home I tell my wife I was like listen uh, he reserved the tickets they're two days from now and uh, we're going to have to pack up everything we can and we're going to take off so she said alright let's do it So now comes a part where everything's lawless. There's no really, the only security is the people, and the people all have a bunch of knives because nobody really has too much weaponry there, right? So my driver, now I want you guys to imagine this. My driver is a Chinese Muslim student at Azhar, and his business, how he makes money over there, is driving people back and forth to the airport and taking people on tours. So I contact him. I said, listen, I heard you have a minivan. Me and my wife and my child, we have about four suitcases. We're going to be heading out. Can you come? And my flight is at 5 a.m. And he said, yeah, okay, I'll be there around uh, 2 a.m. or whatever the case is, right? Or it could have been 6 a.m. and he was going to be there too. It was He was there like three hours before. So now comes the dilemma. He's like, you know what? It took me just a half an hour to get into this neighborhood from the entrance of the main street, which is less than half a mile. And he said there's security checkpoints everywhere of people. And they're going to check us on the way out too. I was like, all right, we have, I'm just thinking, okay, we have all of our paperwork. I have nothing to worry about. So here I am. I'm sitting in the front seat in the van with this Chinese brother and uh, my wife and my daughter in the back, suitcases piled up in the back. We go from a back entrance. He says, I know a back entrance. And it was the least amount of checkpoints. And he takes us through there, literally like a hundred yards away from our apartment. First checkpoint. And this checkpoint is like 30 guys, all of them under the age of 25. And they all have knives, machetes, and this and that. And I'm sitting with my wife in the car. I'm like, and my daughter's in the back. My daughter's not even two years old then. Oh, man, this is not good. The guys, they stop the car. First thing they see is a Chinese guy. Like, who are you? And these are (laughs) Egyptian street kids. So a lot of them probably went to school. A lot of them didn't, but... In the in the midst of all of this, the last thing I want to see is a foreigner. And they see this Chinese guy, and he's talking Arabic with them. And he's like, "Who are you?" I was like, "Oh, my name is this, and this is my passport. I'm from America." He's like, "You're from America? What are you doing here?" I was the only American, only Americans left on, in that neighborhood, from all the students. Everyone else left. And he's like, "Wait, why?" And he, he was asking it loudly. He didn't care. He's like, "He's like, wait, he's American, right?" And they're like, "Yeah." He's like, "Why is he still here?" That's what they said. And I was like, oh man, that was kind of an uncomfortable situation because there was a bunch of brothers. Some of them had knives in their hands. Some of them had this in their hand. And anything, when times of emotion like that, there's all all rationale goes out the window. Someone can be your best friend, but they're going to be like, oh, wait, he got close to us. He did it, you know? So it was kind of weird. So, alhamdulillah, everything worked out the way it was supposed to. Then they're like, wait, you're American? But you don't look American because they think that American is somebody that's just white, you know. I was like, no, well, I'm originally Indian. I'm here as a student. I'm at Azhar. It's like, you're an American that goes to Azhar? Why would an American come to Azhar? I was like, oh, man, this is where it got bad. And all these guys. <laughs> then they started crowding around the car. All of them have knives. And my wife's in the back. I'm just, I'm just concerned. I look at her. She's just chilling. Alhamdulillah. I was like, all right, she's cool, you know. My daughter, she's just playing in the back. You know, there's no car seats in Egypt. So she's just playing in the back seat so uh i was like just chilling shall everything's gonna be good just do your du'as and everything and there was one guy man i don't know who he is i've never met him but i was i did so much du'a for him he just looks in the back he goes looks. who's in the back he has like a light he sticks his head in the window he's like guys there's a woman over here back up back up they're like who cares and they're like, kind of arguing we don't know who they are and the guy's like listen it's a woman you know she looks like she's religious there's a child in the back just back up and you know they all kind of listened to him he seemed i seemed like he was a ringleader so that's the guy i just kind of wanted to talk to only because it seemed like he had the most influence there so then they were like you know what just let them go um and one of them literally just pulls out a radio and he goes you know what i'm going to do you a favor and he says you just checkpoints all across to the airport by the time you get to the airport it's going to take you over an hour and you have to get there i'm going to call one of the army guys that i know in their jeep and they'll escort you to the to the airport so he radios in within 5 minutes some guy comes you know an army jeep he just checks my passport my wife's passport looks at our luggage kind of searches it and then we drive all the way through with him there was one more stop before we got to the airport then we just got to the airport alhamdulillah it was a huge sigh of relief but the conversation that was occurring then with people the conversation before i made this you know trip out while we were kind of camping out at night was first time first thing is people they're like you know we just got to get revenge on what's happening other group of people we need our rights another group of people they were like wait is this a change is there a potential for a more islamic government to come about Right. And then there's another group of people, you know, that were talking and discussing and they were talking about an Islamically ruled government. And this is our opportunity to teach people about it. All these conversations were taking about at the same time. The cool thing is that nobody was really fighting. It was a little it was a cool discussion that everyone was having. It was very civil, actually. And it was around a campfire and all of us were drinking tea, you know, and these conversations actually became very strong. Some of the brothers that I knew in different parts of the city, they were kind of understanding that these conversations were happening too. So people always had this in their mind that anytime there's a a revolution or a spring, that whatever is inside of people's hearts are going to come out because they're not bound anymore. No one's afraid to talk anymore, right? And that's exactly what happened. And people were just talking and discussing in a very civil manner. Nobody was paranoid. Our curriculum, for the most part, was a lot more lax People were able and the instructors that I was talking to and they were able to talk about these things. And even chapters were bought in about, you know, Islamic governance and something known in the chapter of contemporary fiqh issues. We were talking about Riyasa Islamiyah or Dawla Islamiyah, you know, Islamic governance. Um, And they were talking about it very freely as if they've been tied down and they couldn't talk about the politics of Islamic governance. But now everything was kind of like open for a little bit. And everyone kind of just had a sigh of relief, as far as the elders are concerned, because a lot of them lived through the fifties and the sixties, and they 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 knew what that was like, and this was kind of like the yeah. first time they were able to do that, you know. <laughs>
1: So that was Sheikh Amr Said, uh telling us about his exit from Egypt. Um, and uh, I'm, this is Mahin. I'm here with Sim. You're listening to the Mad Mamluks. And that story is essentially the kickoff for the book Islamic Exceptionalism, How the Struggle Over Islam is Reshaping the World, written by our guest today, Shadi Hamid. Shadi is a senior fellow at the Brookings Institute and a contributing editor at The Atlantic. Along with ex- Islam Exceptionalism, he's also written. Uh, he's the co-editor of Rethinking Political Islam. Uh, Shadi, uh, first of all, welcome to the show. Um, it's been a long time coming. People have been asking
2: for you for about a year. So welcome to the Mad Mom. It's <laughs> pleasure to have you on. Well,
3: thank, thanks so much for having me. I'm a big fan, so really glad to be with you.
2: <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Uh, I, I remember when our fans first reached out to us, and I, I think they said some of your books, and I kind of scoffed at my hand. Like, who's this guy? Shadi Hamid, a Muslim guy writing about the Islamic state, about the governance of Islam. It's going to be watered down. It's going to be playing patty cakes with, with, you know, it's going to be one of those really neutered books that are very apologetic about how Islam is. And it's not going to be, you know, it's going to really sugarcoat everything. So when I finally did pick up the book after much more urging from our, our listeners, I was. Amazed, I, I I saw finally someone who identifies himself as a Muslim actually take a neutral position on this and actually um, you know dissect all the various components related to the movements and the, the struggle to bring an Islamic state. Now I want to make sure that as we talk about this phrase Islamic state because it means different things to many different people, and maybe Dr. Shadi can kind of explain some of the different uh, meanings of Islamic State to our listeners, because when I was young, I was into Islamic movements, and it meant, it didn't mean ISIS, but it didn't mean, um, you know, the the Morsi, it didn't mean, yeah, Saudi Arabia, or even the Morsi regime, it meant an Islamic Uh, government that did not recognize uh, the Westphalian nation-state borders. It meant an an expansionist uh, governance governance, uh, similar to how kind of the USSR operated I guess uh, when it was trying to spread uh, its ideology throughout the world. So Shadi, can you kind of uh, explore that a little bit and and, uh, tell us a little bit about how you approached just this controversial phrase about Islamic governance or Islamic state in the book?
3: Yeah, so uh, I'm glad that you thought that I was um, that I was trying to be neutral and unapologetic, and I think that I've gotten a lot of cri- criticism for this, for being kind of straight up and saying, "Hey, I mean, Islam maybe isn't like other religions. I mean, that's where the title of the book comes from. I do, in fact, think that Islam is fundamentally different than other religions in how it relates to politics, law, and governance, right?" So I wanted, to, I, you know, I wanted to address that head on and not get stuck in all this, oh, Islam is peace, Islam is peaceful, which I think is first of all, intellectually inaccurate, intellectually, it's not intellectually frank. Right. And I think it also doesn't go over well with non-Muslim audiences because they know that Um, islam has some involvement in the violence that we see of course we can say that it's a perverted version of islam that people who use violence follow but we at least have to we at least have to be honest that when we're talking about militant groups or extremist groups they many of them if not most of them the leadership at least think that what they're doing is right and commanded by god of course we We'll disagree profoundly with that, but we have—if people tell us they believe in something seriously and they act accordingly, we should at least be open to believing them, right? right. So, I mean, that—that's one thing. When it comes to the term Islamic State, I guess, which will come up in our conversation, um, and even now when I hear the word Islamic State, I have to almost process in my head: Is the speaker talking about? The Islamic State as in the group ISIS or Islamic State and state with a lowercase s, just and that would refer to the general idea of establishing an Islamic State and society. And that could be the Muslim Brotherhood's approach. It could be a kind of more, as you mentioned, the idea of a caliphate, something like the EU on steroids for Muslim countries, things like that. <laughs> so the idea of an Islamic State is, you know, pretty diverse. But now, unfortunately, that phrase is very much associated with ISIS, and that's not the way it was traditionally used, obviously, as you guys know.
1: So, uh, before we really get into the depth of the conversation, there's a couple of real interesting points that are underlie the theme of your book. Obviously, your book seems to be written for more of like a Western audience to kind of clarify, uh, the whole issue of Islamic politics. Um, and you're writing, as you, you yourself identify as like as a liberal, uh, American liberal with a lowercase l, right? So define yeah. liberalism for us the way you see it, and then also define what you consider mainstream Islamism, so to speak, because I think there seems to be like some kind of when liberals look, think about Islamism or an Islamic state, they just freak out. They think and about I, ISIS, they think about yeah. Saudi Arabia, Iran, or Sharia come in to like make all your women cover up, etc. And you do a pretty good job of like alleviating some of that kind of those concerns. But let's let's des- define some terms up front just so we're all on the same page.
3: Yeah, sure. So, um, yeah, I consider myself an American liberal, but I also consider myself. I hope I don't get in trouble for saying this on your show. No. I also consider myself a liberal Muslim, and we can talk about what exactly that means. But an American liberal would just mean that. Uh, I believe in more or less the classical liberal tradition as a kind of starting point for politics in the U.S. as an American citizen. Um, I believe in the Bill of Rights and the Constitution as being absolutely essential to protecting the rights of all Americans, but particularly minorities, including minorities that aren't doing too well now. And that includes Muslims, unfortunately. Um I don't want the government telling me how to, what to believe or how to believe it. So there's also this idea of individual choice where you make your own decisions about what's important to you, about what's meaningful to you without the government interfering and trying to impose a particular worldview on you. that's That's the kind of American liberal side. That's different than how people talk about liberals as like, oh, you're on the left, you're a leftist, you're one of those liberals. That's more the kind of modern American usage, and that's different – a little. that's a little bit different than the classical liberal tradition that we associate, say, with the founding fathers, not of Islam, but of America, uh, like uh, philosophers like John Locke, so on and so forth, right? Yeah. Now, when I – I see myself as a liberal Muslim. I don't actually talk a whole lot about what I think about Islam. I mean, I'm not, I'm not, um, a theologian. I'm not a scholar of Islamic law. I'm a political scientist. So I'm always a little bit hesitant to, like, I don't want to be coming on your show yeah. and handing out some fatwas, but. Um, no, no, but, but I I'm curious that.
2: about that, Shadi. You did, you, it seems like you did quite a bit of research, uh, in regards to some of the evidences, um, a lot of the Islamic movements use for why they justify in the existence of an Islamic government or an Islamic state. Did, how, how, how much did you look into that, and how much did it play a role in, in Islamic exceptionalism in your book?
3: Yeah, so I think a lot and write about a lot about Islamic law. I mean, that's a big part of what I've done over the past few years, and I take it seriously as something to understand on its own terms. And if you want to understand Islamist groups, then you have to understand how they view the Islamic tradition. And just just so just to define it so we're all on the same page. When I use the word Islamist, I mean um, someone who believes that Islam and Islamic law should play a central role in public life. And but that but there's a second part. That person would have to organize politically around that goal. So there's a lot of ordinary Muslims who are conservative who think that Islamic law is super important and they want it to influence legislation, but they wouldn't be Islamist unless that was unless they say joined an Islamist party and that was the way they defined themselves in the public sphere. So instead of focusing on say economic issues and organizing around unemployment or poverty, they would organize around, um, we want to promote Islamic law. And we think that's the number, that's one of the top priorities, right? Um, so under that rubric, there's a, there's a huge, there's a quite a bit of diversity. Obviously you have, um, the more, let's say, progressive Islamists like in Nahda in Tunisia and people, people either praise them or accuse them of watering down their Islamism and moving to the center and trying to be nice and fluffy. So you have, you have that. Then you have the more kind of traditional mainstream Islamists like the Muslim Brotherhood that are still quite conservative. Um and you have the Kuwaiti Brotherhood, the Jordanian Muslim Brotherhood, the Syrian Muslim Brotherhood, so branches in any number of countries. If we want to kind of move rightward on the on the spectrum and to people who are more conservative, then you start getting to Salafis. And I Salafis you know, I guess we would we call them more conservative or the kind of the far right to the Brotherhood's right. Um And then if we want to go to the extreme, then we can talk about groups that use violence and don't believe in working within the political process. They don't believe in working within democracy at all. And those are groups like Al-Qaeda and ISIS. But when we're talking about the mainstream Islamist groups, and those are the groups that I focus on the most, these are groups that participate in the parliamentary process. Um, they, uh, they've moved away from talking too much about divine sovereignty and now they talk about popular sovereignty. And the idea there is that the parliament is the source of authority and the parliament is elected. Um, and that's quite different than say ISIS or Al Qaeda. They would say that God is the sole lawgiver and establishing a, par- a parliament, an elected parliament is uh, usurping God's prerogative. So that's one of the major Fundamental divides between the far far right of the Islamist spectrum and the more mainstream Islamists of the Muslim Brotherhood. Help
2: now. Now, how hard was it when I know you were while writing your book? You met, um, you know, a lot of these Islamists. When, when I was younger in the Islamist group, I was part of Hisbah uh, here. They were like in the Middle East, you can't even mention their their name. You, it's uh, worse than Eichmann, worse than anyone is because they. They don't actually participate in elections or anything like that. They um, they work to overthrow the government through uh, coup d'états and through clandestine operations. I guess that's the only description I can provide. But the, how did you get a hold of these people? Like the, these guys are like really paranoid when you first meet them, and, and you know what wh- what was uh, what was that conversation like?
3: Yeah. Well, so his, groups like Hizb ut-Tahrir are more secretive and harder to get a hold of and harder to talk to. Um, groups like the Muslim Brotherhood, they can be a little bit inaccessible at first. You got to put the time in and get to know them. They got to be comfortable in talking to you. The way it started with me is, um, I was in Jordan. I was living in Jordan for a year in 2004, 2005. I was on a Fulbright fellowship. And part of my research project was supposed to be on Isklamis. And that was something I was getting really interested in, in, gra- in graduate school and my master's at the time. So I go to Jordan. I didn't really have any, I had maybe like one or two contacts. I didn't really have a clear sense of what I was going to do. Um, you meet the first member of the Jordanian Muslim Brotherhood, talk to them, then they introduce you to other people. Then they'll introduce you to some people. They know it's kind of a snowball effect. At first, they were very suspicious of me. They're like, why does this guy care about us so much? <laughs> yeah. And you, from their standpoint, it's like, he's living in our country to study us. What is that about? What are his intentions? Oh, um, you know, he's obviously from the U.S. Who's funding him? Does he have ties to the U.S. National Security Establishment? You know? Yeah. Uh, that, you know, it's, that funny, kind
2: of it's funny you say that because Sheikh Hamer would say that same thing, that yeah. whenever he... If anyone found out in Egypt that he's American, like, what the hell are you doing in this country? Like, why wouldn't you study, uh, you know, uh, secular sciences in your own country? Yeah. Why are you here? Oh, you're here because you want to spy on us. That's why.
3: Yeah, yeah. So you have to kind of get past that initial suspicion. I think after a while, they were like, okay, that no one really cares about it that much. And this is at a time when the Jordanian Muslim Brotherhood wasn't getting much attention. It was always the Egyptian Brotherhood that got a lot of the scholarly attention. So I think at some level they were kind of flattered that I was devoting a year to study them. They're like, oh, okay, well, you know, we must be, we must matter then. And they just got used to me over time. And I remember that I would just some days hang out at the, the Muslim Brotherhood had a political has a political party in Jordan called the Islamic Action Front. I would hang out at their headquarters, pretty much unaccompanied sometimes in their archive room, and I would just like read through documents. And um, so that's that's sort of how it all started for me. And um, and I think I was probably the only Westerner living in Jordan at the time who was just there to study the Jordanian Muslim Brotherhood. Um, and I guess one way of putting it is that I fell in love with the study of Islamists. Let me be clear, not with Islamists, but with studying them. I found them quite fascinating, um, both for good and bad reasons. There were a lot of contradictions that I wanted to tease out. I mean, this idea that you had people who, they had these absolute ideals in theory, but then everyday political practice was fell well short of those ideals, and they had to make difficult compromises. They had to sometimes put their principles to the side And, you know, play dirty because politics requires at least some of that. So the tensions between aspiring to, to, aspiring to this Islamic ideal and playing the everyday game of politics, I was always interested in that kind of gap and what that gap meant. So that's pretty much how it started. I was like, I want to do this for a big chunk of the rest of
0: my life. No, that's a very interesting gap, man, is because you want, you're trying to utilize um, some very holistic ideas based on your religion. But then you're thrown into this arena of politics and it's like being fed to the wolves. And you may have a good intention, but once you get a part of that process, there's a lot of things that you have to change about yourself and
2: your ideals. I mean, you know? it, it's like in IT, they, they call it stress tests uh, on, on any kind of system. And when you insert Islam into something, there, there's like politics is a dirty game, right? And And you put Islam through that vigor. Yeah. Like, hey, can somebody hold to their val- hold on to their values through this type of environment, mm-hmm. right? So I kind of get that where where, exactly, where yeah. you're coming
1: from. It's kind of like the comparison I heard a lot of people would say about Barack Obama. They saw that Barack Obama was as a community organizer was this very idealistic guy, and they expected that to reflect in his presidency. But once he in the presidency, I don't know if this is true or not, but that's a perception that he had to kind of play this game, kind of sell his soul in some ways to, like, just operate the office. Yeah, really-
3: I, re- I remember back in the day with Obama, um, not to go too much on a tangent, but in 2008 when he was running and we were all very optimistic and excited as, as, as young Americans, I remember there was almost this religious vibe. There was something pure about him. And you might recall there were even these um, posters, pictures, drawings of Obama looking out into the distance. And there would be like a light shining onto his face or there would be like a halo almost around him. And I think that that imagery was fascinating to me because there was almost this sense that, you know, if God exists and God is just, presumably he'd send us a much better president after the disaster of George W. Bush. So it was almost like the universe was coming together in the right way. And we could kind of rest assured that the world isn't going to end because this guy who incidentally had a muslim family and muslim background and you know muslims would joke about him being a secret muslim like <laughs> what are the chances of that that the guy after george w bush is sort of he's coming from a muslim background so yeah. it all just seemed very you know it, it seemed like things were coming together at a particular moment in a special way
2: look your guy sim uh, the listeners know that in terms of islamism and things like that th- those topics are something that are generally i'm pretty close to it. they're close to my heart and i was pretty excited when obama was gonna get elected I, you know i just the idea of having someone with the middle name hussein <laughs> on the white house walls where all the president's uh portraits are, are put up you you were kind of like wow you know that's that in itself just forget about it. let's just say he, you know it was looks, very awkward it was very surreal yeah, yeah. It's, it was just you were I mean, because he his way of speech that was the main thing, right? Yeah. It, he just pulled you in; you believed him. Yeah. And I'm he's I'm a skeptic. A I I just believed him. Like, man, he's gonna do it. He's, he's gonna bring everyone together, and and I, I think uh, I think a lot of people were let down, though. I, I think uh, it wasn't uh, all that it cracked up to be. I think the the system really took a hold of him. Uh, and really integrated him into part of part of the machine of, of Washington. Yeah, and politics. and I think that's
0: inevitable, though, right? That it's yeah. always going to go in a certain direction because he,
2: because he's just a cog. I mean, people have to understand the system is already operating in a certain way, and. The presidency can't change that, can it, Shadi? What, what do you think? I know we're we're kind of getting off the subject a little bit, but yeah,
3: yeah. But it applies to Islam. I mean, not, not, no, it, I mean, it probably but applies what? to
2: Islamism as well. But the system is what really holds everything together, and and a a guy like even Trump can't change the system much more than it will really allow, right?
3: Yeah, and, and I mean, for politicians to get to that level, the level that Obama got to, you got to be at least somewhat pragmatic and flexible and even ideologically flexible. So Obama was able to appeal to different audiences at different times, and he was able to play the game effectively. I think that in some ways, Islamists find themselves in a similar situation. They participate in parliamentary politics. Sometimes they do quite well in elections, and they they even have a share of power, or even maybe they win the presidency, like what happened in Egypt. And then... Um, they're, they've made so many compromises to get to that point. They're playing the game of pragmatism. They are – and they're also self-interested. And this is one of the criticisms you hear of the Muslim Brotherhood a lot, is that when push comes to shove, the Brotherhood will, will always prioritize its self-preservation as an organization, even if that comes at the expense of the welfare of the nation or of the broader Muslim community. Yeah, And that's natural. When you're part of a party and you want your party to win, you're going to prioritize the interests of that party. And that's not going to go necessarily hand in hand with the interests of the religious movement behind you. And this is where there's a, a, a kind of tension between religious movements and political parties. So let's say you have the Egyptian Muslim Brotherhood. Then they start a political party, which is what happened during the Arab Spring, um, what is a movement? A movement is interested in dawah, in religious education, in social service provision, but a political party has a more, has a shorter term interest in winning elections. So there's just a lot of these different tensions that come to the fore. And then how do you balance them? And I think groups like the Muslim Brotherhood haven't really figured out how to balance them. And maybe there isn't really an answer to the question because there's no way to perfectly balance those concerns. Religious movements have different goals than political parties do, ultimately.
2: Yeah, and I remember when I was a part of HT in my early 20s, that was one of the things that they would teach us about is that, you know, in order to stick together or preserve your identity as a party, everyone has to be united on certain core positions and everyone has to have... Um, Certain positions that you can't bend on, and that was one of the there was always a rivalry right when you're part of these movements and there was always a you know something that uh uh many of us when we were young we kind of made fun of juan about that you know they just kind of uh, go with go with the flow and go wherever the the wind takes them and um they they really don't have much of a backbone in in anything that they uh are are really aspiring towards um they they'll usually succumb to the pressure and, uh, and and even with all that, I mean, we were so excited when. Well, th- I was out of HT by then, but I think when um, uh, the moment when Morsi did take power, we were all excited over here. I mean, we well, thought a lot uh, of people were full of hope, man. We thought uh, it, it it finally arrived. Kilafa with the capital K will be <laughs> pretty much. Uh, pretty much, it's pretty much going to be implemented soon. The nation and state borders will be disappearing, and that that kind of um. Wait, wait, are you,
3: are you messing right
2: now? No, no, I I thought I I literally thought that you know meaning that there was a over there was over optimism
0: there they're, they're, you, you were kind of seeing how things were falling into shambles and maybe this is the last hope. You know, kind of how people saw gun for a while. They said if anyone makes any Islamic change in the world, it'll be gun. I think a lot of people kind of felt like that with Morsi too because they don't have any other options. See, the thing is that when you're deprived of all options, if you feel something's right, then any little molecular weight of somebody that gestures towards an Islamic change or a revolution, then you just kind of Put all of your eggs in that basket, right? Do you
1: think people in Egypt yeah. actually thought that grand of a scale when Morsi got elected as well? No, th-
2: but but we know as Islamists, right? Like, okay. there's like a click in there. We know, like, hey, bro, you call know them the Islamists, bro. No, I mean, I'm talking about not <laughs> you or, <laughs> or, or me either, I'm <laughs> or Mahin or or, the, or Shadi. But <laughs> well, in my in my past, uh, let's just kind of frame it that way. Everyone kind of was on a you know winking nod, like, okay, this is gonna be. Uh, Capital K, Kilafa, right? And, you know, this Capital is going to be. Yeah, we're starting off with <laughs> Egypt, but eventually it'll be, you know, uh, the neighboring states. So we're going to go off to Algeria and Libya and and Tunisia and Morocco, and it'll spread from there. You know, then it'll be kind of like that domino effect that that the Soviet Union during the rise of communism in the 40s or whatever. So I
3: think I think a lot of Muslims, at least they grew up with an idea. There's nostalgia for hey. When we like, when were we the greatest civilization the world has ever seen? And then you go back and you think about that Abbasid Caliphate, um, the Ottoman Caliphate, for that matter. So I mean, there's always this. You know, people grow up and they hear this word caliphate. It has a it has a historical resonance. But then when you look at a group like the Muslim Brotherhood, at least in recent decades, the caliphate does not figure in any significant way in their political program. Now they might talk about a caliphate as a kind of metaphor or as a way to tap into that nostalgia for a greater path. But a lot of these mainstream Islamist groups, and this this is what makes them mainstream, to to a large extent, they've accepted the nation state, even even though that if you ask them in your ideal world, what would you really want, they'd say, oh, you know, the nation state isn't, you know, isn't, isn't really what we're looking for. We have a different ideal. But they are products of their own circumstances. And well, everyone in Egypt, I think, unless someone's like, I don't know, like super, super old, um, or even in Turkey, where, you know, the, um, the Ottoman caliphate was abolished in 1924, unless you're like 110, no one has any experience of a caliphate. Everyone is a product of the nation state system. That's all they know. That's all they've ever known. Yeah. So it's hard. Hard to, it's hard to think that someone like that is going to be able to think beyond the nation-state and think creatively about alternatives. And I'm not even talking about transnational alternatives, even maybe alternatives where the state is weaker, a more kind of libertarian model, if you will, like strong society, weak state. Yeah. And I have talked to younger Muslim Brotherhood members in exile now who talk about moving away from the state-centric model. But it's hard because... The state is all we know. And even myself as, as someone who studies this, I have trouble thinking beyond the nation state.
0: You know, there, there's one thing that I, I an observation that I would made um, is that whether it's, uh, uh, I, I want to, when I say Islamist group, I, I think that we have to clarify that too a little bit. And you made a pretty decent clarification, but um, as far as, you know, the extreme, as you talked about, as far as ISIS and Al Qaeda is concerned, and even with the Islamic Brotherhood, who's not an extreme case, right? Um, but they're considered Islamists to many countries. And I think to America, they're considered, right, an Islamist group, the Muslim Brotherhood. Muslim Brotherhood? Yeah. They're considered Islamists, right? Yeah. So, so the reason being is that they had the sentiment from the original forefathers that there has to be an Islamic government, right? When Hassan Abdullah started in the late 30s. But the dilemma that occurred was there was not a clear vision or a picture given to them of how that's going to come about, a step-by-step process. It was just a sentiment, an emotional sentiment, which rightfully so, everyone has a right to have that emotional sentiment of seeing the entity being, you know, displayed by what Allah, what they, or just basically according to fiqh, if you want us to put it that way, a fiqh of, of, of Islam. But the dilemma is that it was a title, but there was not a step-by-step process on how to get there. So that's why you'll see there's so many groups, they're all claiming the same thing, but there's no process on how to get there right? And they'll say, we want an Islamic state, okay, how are you going to bring it about? And then they're dumbfounded, unfortunately, right? Now, the only group, which is why I I, I studied, and I, I really, uh, one portion of Hizb al-Tahrir that I respected a lot, is at least for their followers, they told them two things. We're never going to utilize violence, because it wasn't the prophetic way. And number two, this is a step-by-step process on how to establish it. Whether we agree with it or disagree with it, they were the only ones. From the research that I've done out of many groups, that they gave a step by step process to say this is how it's gonna be done if you're living in this reality. If you're not living in um uh, if you're living in a non Muslim country, then there is no such thing. If you're living in a Muslim country, then you're gonna establish and is, these are the ways and how to get there. No other group actually did that, right? For instance, ISIS and Islamic State, no matter how many conspiracy theories you make, is that they just started, you know, killing innocent civilians and Muslim they were killing Muslims more than they were killing non Muslims. Right, and somehow they were supposed to create an Islamic state, and they never really told anybody. None of their followers knew how it was going to come about. They were just screaming. Yeah. Right. Islamic state. Islamic state. Okay, how is it going to be done? How How is the community going to have all their hands in this? Right. Yeah. <clears throat> Excuse me.
3: So, so I think so, I think one issue with groups like the Brotherhood is not only do they not have a clear vision of how to get to where they want to go, they don't exactly know where they want to go in the first place. So to have steps and to have a plan, you need to know what your goal is. And exactly. I think that I, you know, for a lot of, uh, a lot of Islamist groups, these more pragmatic groups, they've always been reticent to go into a lot of detail about what the end state looks like. And in some sense, I don't think they're being disingenuous. I think they're quite flexible as to what the end state could be, you know, where you have, um you know, some vaguely, islamically oriented government you have some restrictions on alcohol consumption you use the state to promote religiosity you maybe offer some incentives for people to have more kids you encourage early marriage um maybe at some some levels of schooling you have sex segregation um you have more quran playing on the on the state tv shows you know what? You know, beyond that, there isn't a blueprint for a, tr- a true alternative. And yeah. that's not really what the Brotherhood has, has offered, at least any time recently. They're talking about Islamizing the state. They're yeah. talking about kind of shifting it in a more Islamic direction, but they're not, they're not undermining, they're, they're not trying to do away with everything that's already there and have something completely different. You know and, and and
2: that's exactly what and i'm it, talking about uh, shadi that you and you spoke uh, in depth about this in the book about you know the direction that the brotherhood was missing, and something that what sheikh Hamer just alluded on well, well why h t his here had something where they actually did an- an an analysis on this aspect that hey this is how we're going to implement a new economic system a new um uh, what uh, so, a social system, yeah, a, a, a new yeah. political system, and how the the political governing body will behave, and all the different institutions that will um, take take hold in society. So, I mean, that is exactly what was missing from Ikhwan. and I think there was even a moment where the both groups uh, and their leaders met in the '40s or '50s, um, and, and they were like deciding, like I think Hassan al-Banna was inviting. Nabhani, Sheik Nabhani, from his Buddha here to join forces, like, hey, let's let's blend together and become like this one mega group, and and I think uh, Sheik Nabhani, uh, he declined that because he saw that they were a little bit too um, lenient or th- they weren't really uh, holding on to a set of principles on how they yeah. want to implement their their vision. And, um, because if, if you go by those definitions that you or that those descriptions that you gave, Shadi, about how, what, what an Islamic government will look like, because, and if you just go by that, then Saudi Arabia is an Islamic government, Iran is an Islamic government, and everyone should just be pretty much happy. Um, I mean, what's there to complain about that, you know, uh, if, if you have <laughs> th- those <laughs> yeah. descriptions in, in place, then yeah. what? What are you crying about? You just go to Saudi Arabia, you know, do your best to um, make hijra. I mean, that, that's yeah.
1: that's what I thought about too. When you were listening, I was like, yeah, it sounds like the no. kingdom. So uh, <laughs> what? What people are slowly?
2: What slowly? What people are slowly realizing in in the Muslim world is that they need a state that guarantees the interests of the Muslims, and that's why they're looking at Erdogan. Erdogan is actually the only one who is, at least his rhetoric, right? We're not talking about his actions. Just his rhetoric is appealing to the uh, sentiment of the public where they're looking for somebody who is interested in the- well-being of uh, the Ummah. Yeah, the but not only that, the um- at rather at the election because, result. Because well, what How did, many
0: people were happy? Not only Turks. All Muslims, all yeah, everyone, everyone, people who knew about politics and didn't know about politics, from all the way from Saudi Arabia to Egypt to United
2: States, people are all. God help him you on, on Facebook if you try to criticize Erdogan, man. You're going to get smashed. Which,
3: which, time, which time period are we? Are you guys talking about
0: just recently? Right now. Like, like,
3: election. Election. you mean this election? Yeah. yeah. So, you, so that's your perception that like Muslims everywhere that you really uh, saw that. We're talking Muslim about our own.
2: Group? We're our own echo chamber, right? We're we're not talking about the so. Among practicing Muslims and things like that, you know, that's... uh, Somewhat traditional Muslims and people from back home. Like,
0: I saw so many people that I knew from Egypt posting on Facebook... And you know, thanking uh, the whole people of Turkey for electing Erdogan and this and that, and you know, people from Morocco, people from United States, yeah, you know, people were all kind of rejoicing, like, "Hey, this is it," you know.
3: A little bit concerning to me.
0: <laughs> <laughs> no, that's fine. That's why you're here. We're here. We're here to let you know
2: what's happening on the ground. <laughs> so, what what is your take? On, what is your take on Erdogan?
3: Look, I mean, he he's, he's got an authoritarian personality. He's become more authoritarian over time. Um, he's moved away from the so-called model of the mid-2000s where Turkey was making some really impressive strides on democratization, even expanding rights for minorities like the Kurds, um, sidelining the military. Those were all positive things. But then in recent years, we see Erdogan really centralizing power in a very aggressive way um, and being intolerant of dissent. I mean, the fact that... um, Tens of thousands of people have been fired from their jobs and oftentimes without due process. There's a crackdown against journalists and um, a fairly high number of journalists are in prison. Um, he's taken control of most of the country's uh, major media outlets. Um, if you criticize Erdogan too aggressively, you can actually get uh, prison time. So, I mean, so these are all things that That um, even people who are more Islamically oriented, that's not the model. I mean, that's a model. uh, The danger there is that you're associating an Islamic approach with an authoritarian approach. And that becomes a bit problematic. I'm someone who very much believes that my non-negotiable is democracy, the democratic process. And when I see a leader starting to move away from a free and fair democratic process where everyone has a shot of winning, then I get very concerned because the question then is can Erdogan's opponents win? Well, even if they get enough popular support, is there enough freedom of expression and access to the media, the right to protest for them to actually get their message out and to communicate their ideas to voters. And I think that Turkey is getting into this space where it's harder for the opposition to express their views publicly. And that means it's not a fair playing field.
2: I totally agree. I, guess- I, I agree in that sense that we know from history, when you suppress anyone, there's going to be a, a backlash and you're going to feel it in some way or another. You're creating more work for yourself in, in uh, what I mean, in terms of, um, what you've seen the, the smarter politicians do is actually engage with them and uh, try to hear them out and listen to them rather than suppress them. So so I've met like various amount of Turks. So Turks, I, I kind of
1: equate Erdogan in his following that almost similarly to Trump. They're different people, but let me explain what I mean. <laughs> yeah, like no, Trump supporters yeah. are very hardcore Trump, right? And then the people that don't like him, they hate his guts. There isn't like a medium really, right? And the Turks I've met, they're either, like I've noticed that if they're if they're like if they're like secular or even atheists, they hate his guts. But anyone who's like religious loves them. Now the thing is, when I spoke to the religious folks and I bring these issues up, they seem to have a fear that if he didn't get elected, it would revert back to suppression of the religious folks, right? Of like under what was under Kemalism. So is there happy medium in Turkey was I don't know if I don't follow this election in depth so I don't know if there was a medium like a religious candidate that was a little bit more moderate in his approach that wouldn't have been as suppressive uh, to toward- you know,
3: look so if, if you're a religious Turk I get that you would see Erdogan as your protector and you may not prioritize democracy you just want to make sure that your own interests and your ability to express yourself as a religious Muslim that that ability is protected so I get that. My issue, though, is with Muslims who live outside of Turkey and don't really have a personal stake and don't have to live with the
1: consequences of elections. We do have a stake, by then, the way. Uh, the good <laughs> good Turkish television drama. <laughs> oh, yes, right. <laughs> but I, I, it is go on. Because like, under I, him, I, I, like, we got some sweet stuff to watch now. Yeah, yeah, Are we, you guys
3: going like, to... Are you guys gonna hype up Urtağrul er- yeah. as the show that everyone should watch on Netflix?
2: Absolutely,
1: we, we're beyond Netflix. I, I'm done with the entire show. I'm waiting for season five now. He's, he's been going through like pirated. <laughs> my, my, my daughter, Netflix. who's four years old, is like hooked on it too.
3: <laughs> I, I must confess, I haven't started it, but um, I've Shali- heard a lot, of, a lot of good things. So maybe I should try that out. Did, did you hear well, about my um, seven year
2: seven year old daughter who made it onto Turkish TV? They, they, um, TRT, the channel. Hey, I was on there. there too for like 10 seconds. Yeah. Mahin was like on a little <laughs> dot on the screen over there. But so they, they reached out to us, the, the producers, and they said, Hey, we heard your podcast on uh, Arturul and, uh, would you be willing to send us some fan videos about it? I'm like, well, well, how much time you got? I can message all of our fans and, and tell them to send something in. But they're like, no, no, no we can't handle that many. Just send us a, a handful of. And by the way, we need in like two hours. I'm like, what? <laughs> so I'm like, I quickly grabbed my daughter, who's like the biggest Ertuğrul fan. And she's like, Oh, I'd love to do it. And I'm like, Hey, you can go on TV on, on Turkish TV and blah, blah, blah. And I sent him a, a video of her and, and Mahin sent one of his videos and we submitted to uh, TRT producers in Turkey and, and they aired it. They made a whole YouTube clip on it. And, uh, my little girl wow. is, is like telling him about like all the characters in that show. And it, it was really just like, Mind blowing! Like holy cow! Like you just don't realize how many people you're reaching in the world and how many people are listening. Like, I, like
3: one one thing I'll say on the like the Trump uh, the Trump on comparison is I think and this is not just in Turkey in the U S but in a lot of countries it's become so tribal that no one is really voting on policy. No one is reading what candidates actually stand for on tax policy or poverty or healthcare. And making decisions in that, in that kind of policy-oriented way, we define ourselves as part of a tribe, and we vote accordingly. So even if even if Trump does things that I like in policy terms, hypothetically, I don't know what that would look like, but let's say he did, I would still probably vote Democrat because that's my tribe. Those are the people who I'm down with, and I know that you guys have talked about this in previous podcasts, but Democrats actually – Care about minorities, including the minority that I'm part of. So it's not really about yeah. policy. It's about being with like-minded people who you relate to and you feel comfortable with them and they see you as human beings and as equal citizens. And it's no longer really about policy or like taxes and stuff like that. So I just, I just think that's where a lot of politics is going today. It's, it's, it's very personal
2: yeah. and it's
3: very tribal.
2: Yeah, I don't know if you if you listen to our podcast, but mine is uh, a hardcore righty. He's, I uh, a- uh, volunteered for Bush Cheney '04 when everyone
1: thought I was crazy. I, I'd go to MSA events wearing a uh, Students for Bush T-shirt. <laughs>
3: no, no way. I don't believe that. Get out of <laughs> here. <laughs> this
2: guy, dude. this guy rejoiced when Trump won, dude. I didn't rejoice. I just thought it was humorous. Picture, pic, picture, <laughs> Mike, Michael J. Fox in that one show that he did in the '80s. What was that show? Uh, that he, where growing he was growing Paints? Re- yeah, gr- no, no, not growing pains. Where he was the the little Republican kid who was. Hardcore oh. Reaganomics and everything. That's oh. what was that show? Family? No, jeez. So, some listeners I, are screaming at the radio right now. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I know
3: what you're talking about. Yeah. I just Can't remember. Michael the name. J. Fox's yeah. first show,
2: basically. Anyway, um, okay. that that is who Mahin is. Really, he, that he is. He loves talking the, the talking points of, of Reaganomics and different, uh, conservative theories. But, and, and I'm the one who's more left-leaning. I, I, I'm such a mess of contradictions, by the way, Shadi. I have like left-leaning ideas and people who are my conservative friends will say like, hey, Sim, you're, you're kind of going off the, the path of, uh, of righteousness, uh, you know, but, uh, but it, it, I'm, I'm, so, I'm so, uh, I'm all over the place basically.
0: No, but that's, that's, I, I, I think that that's what's required sometimes. Number one, it shows that you can take from, from, from all parts and, and still have your own principles, right? So, cause th- that's, that's again, a tribal uh, mindset to the extreme is, Hey, I'm going to be on the right because that's what I am. Right. But, oh, Shazi, by the way,
2: do you know where we come up with the episode titles? No, I don't. Um, they're all heavy metal um, songs or a variation Wait. of a heavy metal songs.
3: I, I, I did not know that.
2: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think a lot of listeners just didn't know that either until I just.
1: They'll stop listening now because they'll be like, music is haram, <laughs> brother. <laughs> yeah.
3: um, I, I was about to say, like, you know. some. Yeah, see, I, I, I told you I'm a mess of contradictions. From you, from you on some of these questions. So I'm like, oh, I wonder if they listen to music that much.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, well, no. So, so I try bas- to limit it to s- halal messages in the music. I, I don't try to, you know, go into, you know, devil worship or anything, or, or you know, <laughs> or or booty, or booty <laughs> worship, or you know, <laughs> yeah. But.
1: uh I was still seeing was a contradiction. Like, how you how you gonna be an like, HT guy, but you'd rather live in America? Oh like, yeah. I was like, Absol- oh no no, I'm gonna
2: help out the state from here.
1: <laughs> from abroad, so not- I I I still I still need my burgers and my football. <laughs> like you know, like I'm
2: give them uh, some IT tips <laughs> on how to help their broadband before I move, make hijra over there. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so one thing, uh, you mentioned a real epiphany in the book early on. I remember highlighting this, and I, uh she even showed this to some of my coworkers because they always ask about why Muslims do what we do. And the whole thing about the Muslim Brotherhood, how one of the early things things you caught on when you're meeting people was like their essential thing was like, well, we just want to go to heaven. And you're right. You, you're basically just like, what could be more – you're first like, that's crazy. But then you're like, wait, what could be more rational than that? Um exactly. have you found that idea actually, does that make sense to the average American though I mean I don't know I, I've heard you mention that in other public forums, but do people can whether they agree or not, but does that make sense to them at least when you're talking no, to I, a greater liberal audience I
3: think it I think it's a big jump for a lot of Americans, especially the Americans that i mean i I, I see and hang out with the kind of northeastern liberal elite. People who are, you know, who have gotten more secular over time and religion just isn't, isn't a big part of their lives. So I think it's hard to relate to a group that, so I mean, just the anecdote, you know, that, that you were, that you mentioned, you know, cause we, we all have these debates about why do people join a group like the Muslim Brotherhood? And I think that in an academic setting, we tend to focus on tangible factors that we can measure. So things like rural urban migration, unemployment, people are pissed off at America, angry about other things, whatever it might be. And those, those could all be factors that play into it. But what was so striking about what this Muslim Brotherhood official told me is that, you know, he was just like, for some people, it's a lot more simple than that. They, they just want to get into heaven and joining group like the Muslim Brotherhood gives them a kind of strict, a stricter way of life. They're around other people who share their beliefs. There's an educational curriculum. So the idea there is that being a part of the brotherhood would help them get into heaven. And that can be really what what takes precedence over almost everything else. Um, if you, in fact, and then the question becomes, how, is that rational or irrational?
1: And hmm.
3: for people who believe in paradise, that's a very rational calculation to to do whatever you can in this life to get eternal salvation. So I think that's a very important idea to convey to Western audiences who have trouble understanding why members of these groups do what they do hmm. and to also rethink our conception of rationality, that being rational isn't just about, uh, you know, oh, being scientific and establishing causality and looking at factors that you can measure, there are things that are metaphysical that drive people. It's the same thing, you know, what's the matter with Kansas? Why do people vote against their economic interests in parts of the U.S.? It's because, you know, people are interested in things beyond their everyday economic state. There are things that get them more passionate, that they believe in strongly, and that could lead them to act against their economic interests and that shouldn't be we should stop getting surprised about
2: that um, uh, that's true shadi uh, and i'll tell you from my own experience you can use me as a test subject why i joined uh ht when i was young i was you know 18 right out right out of high school and when I, growing up I, i've talked about this in Islam, uh, smile royer's podcast the first american jihadi i you know the bosnian war was the most pivotal moment in my life when I saw wholesale slaughter of what was told to me as my Muslim family. You know, like there were soldiers coming into Bosnian soldiers who were coming into our mosques and they set up these posters and everything. And, and you, you, in essence, you, you had this, um, sense of social justice in you. I, I mean, right now we make fun of a lot of social justice warriors, but you wanted to do something about it, right? And, but when you saw, like, the inability of Muslim governments not to do anything, I remember looking at, like, a map of the Muslim world, and I'm like, not a single country can help these guys out. And they're coming here and asking yeah. regular old Muslims to look at, our, help them out, you know, and and you developed a sense of frustration. And you're like, and it's kind of boiling inside you, and you're trying to figure out who to blame. Well, okay, well, why why isn't there a Muslim country who is interested in the uh, interests of Muslims, and then you finally find out that oh, you know the the CIA is helping out some countries, and so and so KGB is helping out this other country, and they're all playing the Middle East as a, this big chess map of how to you know how to control its resources, and then. Then you're like, okay, well, you know, the only way to to get out of this is joining a political party or a movement that is going to uproot some of these dictators out of our countries and install some rulers who will actually act in in the interests of Muslims and and what Muslims actually want from their rulers, you know. So that that is at least from me and my brought up, that's how I kind of went went off into that world, and I don't regret it because I learned so much. I mean I there was so much so many experiences in my time with Islamic movements that that you just can't get from any other uh place I mean I I hang out with Sufis now uh, the Salafis after right after I left them I hung out with them it was fantastic I mean those guys are 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 Who, who I, do you like
3: more the Sufis or the
2: Salafis? Uh Sufis are much more nicer I'll I'll say that. <laughs> the Salafis they they they're they're nice but it's like you know you're kind of uh, always uh, Worried about what you say. Basically, you you don't want to yeah, say you gotta anything be, to.
0: You got to be on guard around them.
2: I love them. I love that. I know we have a lot of selfie listeners. I'm I'm telling you guys, if if there's, yeah, uh, that for the sake of the listeners. Yeah, right? I, I'm telling you guys, there's um, there's a lot of love for you guys as well. It's, especially Sheikh it's... Yasser Khadi. We had him on our show. He's he knows how much. He doesn't I
1: love. identify selfie anymore though. Oh, he
2: doesn't. No, okay. he doesn't.
1: It's called Orthodox.
2: But as <laughs> Orth- Sufis,
1: we give love too because their shows get the most hits. <laughs> uh, like that's all we care about. We, we uh, we're a numbers based
2: organization, <laughs>
0: so, uh...
2: without any advertisers who actually care about our numbers. But <laughs> no, we we try to stay independent of advertising. We we there are a couple of advertisers we're looking into, but we try to be free of money trying to control good, what yeah. we're trying to say. And this is something that's kind of a hobby of ours, and we we, we don't want to worry about pissing anyone off, right? So. Go, yeah. um, what, what was uh let's go. Let's but ask, I just I just want to mention ahead.
0: something um, I'm glad you mentioned that thing about when you're growing up in the Bosnian war, you know, I, I think there's that that's where the fine line begins where the nurturing of the of the adolescents or the youth has to take place. Is when I was growing up, same exact thing, the Bosnian War. I was like thirteen years old maybe. Yeah. Twelve years old. And I was thinking to myself, I was like, How come there's no entity that people are afraid of to bully around Muslims? Like, if you have an older brother in school, no one's going to mess with you, right? Yeah. They don't even think about it because that entity's there. They may not be present there right in front of them, but he's in some other classroom somewhere, and they know, that they know that you have an older brother here, right? And I was thinking to myself, how come there's no older brother for the Muslims? Like, how is everyone just walking all over them? Yeah. And I think that's where you have to find the point, and that's where a lot of people who started joining ISIS is, they had that same sentiment. That's a human sentiment, right? We have to be very, very clear. When there's a people that you love, especially if it's your own people and something that binds you, whether it's your color, whether it's your religion, whatever the case, whether it's an idea, if somebody messes with those people and you actually love those people, right, then you're going to start thinking, okay, wait, how come nothing's happening? And then you start taking matters into your own hand, right? That's where that frustration builds up. But that's a very valid sentiment to have. How come there's all these Muslim countries and they're not being a shield toward the Bosnians. How come all these things are happening in Kashmir? How come all these things are happening you know, in Afghanistan? How come all these things are happening in Iraq and Syria? And how come nobody can do anything about it? It's actually really sad. It crosses the line when there's children, women and children. That's what gets you the most, right? Yeah. When there's women and children involved and uh, still does, nobody does, can does, actually do anything. The I mean, the stories so of rape, mass rape in yeah, Bosnia. I don't even like to talk sinking. about that. It was, man. It's just. I don't, honestly, I, don't
2: I, I remember crying just leaving the mosque with my parents. They're like, I remember telling them I was like twelve or fourteen. Um, I'm like, send me to this country. I'll fight if no one wants to fight. And I'm, they're like, oh no, we're gonna send you to a hif school. <laughs> we'll make you memorize the Quran. Don't worry about that. <laughs> so they, they kind of freaked out, you know. That, that's but a but that's a natural child thing to do. The
0: child thinking naturally. Hey, no one's taking care of this problem. Let me do the job. Yeah. Right. And that it's it's a very innocent thing to to to, to feel.
1: Right. Well, y'all are some good kids. I just cared about my next starter jacket.
0: <laughs> cared about next starter jacket. No,
2: dude. I I liked I liked everything American too. I listened to metal. I was like into all kinds of music. Yeah, but like I, I like shoes and I like you know I, starter jackets and everything. But. I, you know, I was just kind of with the, this, um, Sunday school kind of cultivated this brotherhood in us, you know? Sunday
1: school? I hate going yeah. to Sunday school. <laughs> <laughs> See? That's like, right. I,
2: I think there's been You guys grew up in Chicago. Shadi, you're
1: like from, you're from like Pennsylvania. Oh, but, but Shadi talks about his yeah. Sunday school
2: experiences in his book. Oh, Shadi, what, what was your Sunday yeah, school Yeah, let, like? let, let,
1: let's, let's talk a little bit Cause like m- my mindset growing up, when these guys were like talking about like going to Bosnia, I knew Bosnian kids that came to my school. <laughs> these guys talking going to Bosnia. And then like they show up and like, I'd be like, oh, cool, what up? Let's, let's go play Play ball, But I never thought about, like, I never thought about, like, oh, you guys came from this horrific... Because you're a Republican. You think about yourself only.
2: <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> Anyways. Yeah. All right. I, tell us about your, your, your brought up and how you kind of uh, learned um, your religion. Uh, or not your religion, um, but okay. you know what I mean.
3: Yeah. Uh, yeah, sure, sure. So, I mean, I, I grew up around, I would say, you know, not not just Muslims, but specifically Egyptians. There were a lot of Egyptians in our community that's, were, um, who are, fam- you know, a lot of our family friends were, um, there was a local mosque that we, that we went to outside of Philadelphia. But in terms of how I was brought up, it was more of the, um, like my, my parents are, are, um, observant, but they were chill in their own way that it would sort of be like, Hey, Shadi, we don't think you should do this. And I, and we've told you the reasons why, but we're leaving it up to you to make the decision one way or the other. Um, so there was always this idea that the fr- I had the freedom to make my own choices. So I even remember, like, when I was debating about, you know, do I want to go to the high school dance? If if I had been like, um, I think the reason that I didn't go is because I got rejected. But let's say, well, <laughs> 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 let's say let's say it was. You know, I, I I wanted to go and I had someone to go with. I think my parents' position was, we think this is not the best environment and we think that it can lead to things which are inadvisable, but we're not going to force you one way or the other. And I have to say, like, looking back, I think that approach um, is a good one. Um, I generally err on the side of more freedom rather than less. Um, that was sort of the vibe that I had, um, you know, growing up. Um and I actually didn't even know that there was some – there was also an Arab-Pakistani divide to some extent. Yeah. I didn't actually know about eating halal until I went to college. And I'm like, <laughs> wait, I, I just thought what? halal meant not pork. <laughs> and now people are telling me that there's something called halal meat. I'm uh-huh. like, what is that about in and it's word the Bihai, which I was like, "What is the Bihai, You know.
2: <laughs> so. That's you get for hanging out with Indians and in bucks. That's the yeah. that's what you get for not being in Chicago. <laughs> <laughs>
3: yeah.
2: But did you did you ever spend time in Egypt? Did you ever?
3: Yeah, I spent a year in Egypt when like in preschooler like preschooler kindergarten awesome. like when I was pretty young. I don't remember and too I would, much. I was, then I would go. Um, we'd we'd often spend a chunk of the summers in Egypt.
0: Nice. What and... part of Egypt are you guys from? If you mind me asking.
3: Uh, Ky- Cairo, a, yeah, um, an area called Heliopolis is Heliopolis. where uh, oh, um, a lot yes. of our
0: relatives are. Yes, yes, uh, yes.
3: They're close to the presidential palace, actually. Yeah, yeah, I know. Is, where is that all the rich folks cat?
0: I used to live in Mediat Nasser. Okay. <laughs> I When I first went to Egypt, I lived in Ismailia, actually, which is much more conservative than Cairo. Have is you that, heard of Is that is that close to Heliopolis? Yeah, yeah. No, no, no. Ismailia sure. is like two and a half hours from Cairo. Oh,
1: are there okay. Ismailis that live there? No, no, no. <laughs> There's no Ismailis that live there. <laughs> okay. That's actually,
0: that, that's actually where Hassan al Dawah started. Oh, oh right. wow. I found oh, out after right. right. I went there. It's the Holy that's Land. Correct. It's, yeah. the holy land. <laughs> <laughs> it's the Holy Land. Rahim Allah. It's the Holy Land. So, uh, Brother Shadi, I know that you're an academic and a very serious guy. Uh no, he's We're not. a bunch he's of goofballs, a, a so you're going to have to get used to this um, once we get comfortable with That's you. why I
3: like your podcast. All don't right, worry. cool.
0: No, no, that's right. You, you listen to some podcasts, so don't be deceived. We actually are pretty goofy, so we're going to make you the same way.
1: <laughs> um, so, what, what the heck was I just... I know, you just made me lose my... Let, let's run through some... these Yeah, you know, questions. yeah
2: I had... Um, I wanted to ask him... Go ahead. Why didn't you explore... Um, Conversely, the Pakistani Islamist movements, uh, like, for example, Jamaat-Islami or Tanzima-Islami, which is – Tanzima-Islami is like the HT of Pakistan, right? Yeah. The, and then Jamaat-Islami jamaat is like the of. What about jamaat to the to, to they're, they're, the, they're the ones who all the movements did not like because they got free pass to every country they <laughs> wanted to go to. Everyone because they're hated on the Mises because they're non But that was their intention, right?
0: They knew that they could reach everybody oh, if they're yeah. not going be political, right? They're still annoying as hell. Uh,
2: yeah, yeah. They still, <laughs> knock on my door when I'm taking a nap. or <laughs> <laughs> I tell the kids, to tell I'm well, sleeping.
3: I can't, I, well, I can't focus on all the movements, so at some at some point I had to make a choice about what I really wanted to focus on academically. Mm-hmm. I think for me, jamaat islami would have been tougher to really make that my main focus because I don't I don't speak or or read Urdu. Right. I I speak and read Arabic and I'm originally, you know, I'm born and raised here but originally Egyptian, so I already have the natural interest in the Arab world and I'm just more familiar with the context. Got so I think it's that that's pretty much the reason.
2: Did you guys know that Abu Allah Modudi is from my home country of Hyderabad, India. No one is originally in the room. Yes, mashallah, that's where I'm from. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you were no from Medina, bro. Yeah. <laughs> I am from Medina as well, but that's where I moved to um, after I was born.
1: So, one of the questions we got, so I actually, listened, I heard your interview uh, with Sam Harris. Was it like yeah. a few months back? didn't so uh, I actually forgot. I'm in trouble now. Okay. <laughs>
2: <laughs> no, I was actually happy to see you on there, man. That was great. You did a fantastic job because. Thank you. Go, yeah, go ahead, uh, Mahin. Yeah, him. I
1: mean, a lot of people have like, so first of all, let me ask you, were you able to like talk to him offline at all? Um, like what's his, cause people have like, Muslims, we have a perception that he just wants us extinguished. Anyone who's religious, who's like, you know as a practicing muslim they want some like off the face of the earth more or less
2: yeah but if you see that interview he, sam was pretty respectful and pre- pretty nice to um shadi he was like you know really yeah. um, um you know uh careful about how he phrased his questions and things like that yeah. how did you feel the interview went shadi let's let know why you even took that interview because i yeah, know i know they... you talked about in your book you kind of talked about how your work can be kind of taken in in uh, if if it falls into the wrong hands, some people can kind of use it uh, as a way to uh, make an argument against Muslims.
3: Yeah. So I was pretty happy with how the interview with with Sam Harris went. I mean, my so I okay. How do I this? I mean, some of your listeners may not like me saying this, but I I I personally wouldn't be comfortable dismissing Sam. You know. I think to dismiss someone as an Islamophobe without engaging with them and without actually understanding where they come from, I think we have to be careful about that sometimes. And my sense was that Sam was someone that, you know, I disagree profoundly on with him on a number of things. And he's made some problematic statements about Muslims um, in the past. But I think that he's someone that if you if you engage in good faith, he will he will engage in good faith. Here's um, what, here,
2: here's what really gave him the fuel. He got all the ammo he needed from that appearance on Bill Maher's real time. With you Ben know? Affleck? Yeah, yeah, yeah with, with Ben Affleck, where Ben Affleck is accusing him of being racist because he said, like, Islam is a mother load of, of all problems or mother Bill lo- Maher said that. No, Bill Maher, no, I thought Sam Harris said that. I and think then, Bill Maher said it, right? One of them, one of the two he said it. Sam Harris,
3: but he, yeah, Sam Harris agrees with it. I mean, so here's the thing. I don't think I don't think Sam Harris would deny that he's not a fan of Islam, right? He doesn't he doesn't like Islam and I think he's open about that. Yeah. Um, I don't think that's the same thing as so when people say, Well Shadi, how come you accept to be on a panel with the with Sam Harris or Anne Hersi Ali or Majid Noad would you agree to be would you agree to be on a panel with an anti Semite? I don't think the comparison makes sense because I don't think that Sam Harris has any problem with someone who is Muslim who is not particularly practicing. He would hang out with that person, and there wouldn't be there wouldn't be any kind of racial prejudice or anti-Semitism. It doesn't matter how religious a, a Jewish person is; just by virtue of them being Jewish, they are subhuman. That is not it's just simply not comparable. I mean, Sam Harris's issue is with Islam. The idea ask ourselves, you know, um, is that there are people and but Sam Harris is against religions in general, but he's, he has a bigger issue with Islam, I think, for an obvious reason, which is that Islam is the bigger issue in the world today. There aren't a whole lot of, at least in the West, at least in um, the kinds of circles that Sam Harris is in or in Europe. There aren't a whole lot of conservative Christians who are really intense about their religion and who want to establish Christian state. Christianity doesn't, and that's, that's where the exceptionalism comes in, Christianity exactly. doesn't offer the same kind of political narrative that Islam, Islam often does, or at least that Islam is capable of offering. So for someone who's suspicious about religion playing a role in public life, they're naturally going to be more concerned about Islam than Christianity, um, so I think that's where that's where a lot of this comes from. Uh, does, does that make sense? Yeah,
0: yeah. yeah I that think it was a great. I think it was a great. I think a to lot of, you. you have to meet with them to have a discourse with them, just not only to show holes in their game, but just to get to know what how, what's making them tick, right? Well, and
2: people like that, if left on, left to their own devices, they can just use you know um, Shadi's book and say, "Hey, look, even this guy is saying Islam is." uniquely different from all religions and use it to support his argument without shadi even providing any context yeah. to what what okay, he's to actually... be fair
3: yeah i am worried that is something i have been worried about as you guys alluded to yeah. earlier right um and it's still something i worry about and i and sometimes i'll meet someone who apparently hasn't read the entire book but maybe has skimmed through it or maybe read parts of the first chapter and then they're like they're using my argument they're like huh that's not really what that's not where I go with my argument that's not really what I'm getting at here but i'm i try to be very clear that islam being different than other religions is not a bad thing actually a lot of muslims like the fact that their religion is exceptional maybe we maybe muslims don't like talking about that in public but i hear that a lot yeah. At least in private that, oh, we're, you know, there are things about Islam that make it different. It's uniquely uncompromising on certain issues. It's harder to privatize. It's harder to secularize Islam. So, I mean, Muslims will sometimes say those, those similar things too. But, um, what I'm trying to say as a scholar who's trying to be objective about this is, you know, people being different isn't automatically bad. A religion being different isn't automatically bad. That's the point of religions. They're supposed to be different. Otherwise we'd all be the same and we'd all just kind of, you know, switch from one religion to another overnight. There are differences that matter. Theology matters. So, you know, I don't, but, but what I, what I really, what I really try to emphasize is we live in a pluralistic democracy. Difference is something to be embraced. So, the 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 end point here isn't saying oh um islam is different we kind of don't like anyone who believes in that stuff because they believe in this different thing no the answer is to say let's let's open ourselves up to hearing about a different a different way of life or a different approach to theology and um i think that's that's how a pluralistic democracy has to run so that so when i talk about this islamic exceptionalism this idea I'm not, I'm not saying that it's bad. A uh, religion, and even religion playing a role in public life or the fact that Islam is, has been resistant to secularization, that's not automatically bad. It's only automatically bad if you think that secularism is a kind of religion of its own, that everyone has to embrace secularism from now until the end of time. If you believe in that very strongly, then you're going to see Islam as a threat simply because Islam is less likely to go in that direction. But why is secularism the required endpoint for all peoples for all times, right?
1: That becomes more of a, like, a philosophical root of like when you hear, listen to people like, uh, especially when ever Dave Rubens talks to Sam Harris, that's his like secularism or classical liberalism, as they say, is like the absolute truth. And everything must conform to that or else.
3: Right. And that goes back to why they why they tend to have more of an issue with Islam, because I think they realize intuitively and um, just as I think I realize intuitively that Islam is not going to follow that same course that Christianity did, where Christianity basically gave way to classical liberalism and classical liberalism became more dominant in, in most Western democracies. It's unlikely that's going to happen in Muslim majority contexts. I mean, it's hard to find a lot of liberals in these countries, or even the word itself. But that's a whole different thing. But yeah. yeah.
2: So, Shadi, let's just uh, say for a second, uh, the Islamic movements. Let's just say the Muslim brother was the Muslim Brotherhood was able to hire you as an analyst. What kind of advice would you give them in terms of uh, uh, their? Prognosis. Now you already said like you know they need to have some clear set of goals and ideas. Like these are this is what we're going to do to differentiate ourselves from everyone else out there. But other than that, um, in terms of trying to take power, uh, in a Muslim country, we saw that they failed pretty much with with the uh, CC um, Morsi or, or sorry yeah CC upended their. Yeah. Their rule, right? Yeah. So, um, what would you advise them, um, Islamists in general in North Africa and beyond? So, at
3: first, at first, I would just say that, um, I, I would not, I would not accept to be hired, um, by an Islamist movement, <laughs> like Brotherhood or others. Um, there's only, so either, there's only a couple different organizations that I would either, uh, <laughs> well, well, okay, like, how do I put this? well i don't believe in uh, maybe this will be a point of disagreement here on yeah. this podcast but i don't believe in islamic government that's so fine. i don't that's not a, that's not a goal that i that i aspire to or that i want necessary that's not something that i'm trying to promote this is strictly prefer- in
2: in the realm of academia where just Sh- shooting around ideas and nothing to feel fr- bad about. We're probably going to hang up on you right now. <laughs> Stop. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm just <laughs>
0: like,
2: go ahead, brother. Go yeah, ahead. in case any Islamophobe is listening, Shadi Hamid does it, not it, promote it Islamic
1: states. Okay. All right. Are we good? All right. <laughs>
2: nope.
1: I'm sorry, go ahead. No, no go go ahead. Ahead. So, like, yeah, in a purely, like, purely theoretical academic with that disclaimer that you would never accept the position if they were to hire you and you accepted uh, your alter ego or whatever like how would you i guess consult them like develop a strategy right yeah
2: okay um, would you suggest like- them would you because I, I clearly, clearly, hang on hang on let me let me provide some context because when i was young and and, and in the movements they said like when you are joining a the parliament or any governmental body and trying to bring about change it's going to fail It's going to fail because you're going to integrate yourself into the system. You're going to be part of the wheel, and you're going to try to change things. But instead, the the system will end up changing you. So, and and which which they ended up being right about they we saw that exact same thing kind of play out with many movements across the world. Uh, With uh, Morsi, he he just had the rug pulled underneath him, and uh, he got sent to jail but um how i mean if democracy doesn't work and um you know playing by the rules is not working and we don't want to do violence either i mean what else is there is there like a a slow culturing of the population uh maybe you just have to bring a popular uprising where you just kind of wait for the right conditions to take place and you know an economic downturn You know, let's just, let's just take Egypt, for example, which, you know, depends heavily on tourism and things like that. This is to say, tourism takes a decline in Egypt and, and, you know, you you work on the people a lot more where you're kind of cultivating an Islamic ideology, uh, with them. And,
3: uh, so, so look, this is why I think Islamist groups are kind of stuck. Just as you pointed out, if you look at the various options, none of them seem to work really well. Um, so that said, I mean, I think what, what I would say, and I think this would apply not just to Islamists, but also some other groups is, you know, ideological polarization is a major problem in the Middle East now. Whenever you have a democratic opening, Islamists and non-Islamists can't get along and they oftentimes start fighting each other. And, you know, um, at the start of my book, I I discussed the the Rabbah Massacre, which happened on August 14, 2013. That's something that is a product of an unacceptable level of ideological polarization, where some non-Islamists, I should actually say many non-Islamists in Egypt, many so-called liberals or secular elites, they end up supporting the mass killing of their fellow countrymen. In this case, Muslim Brotherhood supporters. We have to ask ourselves: How do these countries get to the point where where Islamists and non-Islamists, secularists, whatever you want to call them, they they come to blows in a very destructive way? I think one way to address that um, is to sort is to sort of suspend dealing with polarized ideological issues until the transition is safe and secure. So let's say that CC, um, this is very hypothetical, obviously, CC or whoever else is going to be in charge, they say, there's been too much repression, we're going to start a political opening. And then this political opening gains steam and there actually seems to be potential for a new democratic transition. The goal, I think, for the brotherhood is to focus on securing the democratic transition. And one way of doing that is to put to the side for at least a certain period of time, um, talk about Sharia or what an Islamic state might look like and focus on building stronger relationships with liberal and leftist groups who are similarly committed to democracy. I think that's one
2: thing. How how do you do that with the the military, uh, you know, completely secular?
3: Lovely. Well well I, well, this sort of assumes that the military is um, the military will give up some of its power and allow for at least a, a significant democratic opening. and that's why this conversation is so hypothetical because right. it's hard to really envision that in Egypt anytime soon um, so but that that's one thing. the other thing is to have a clear sense of uh, I think that one problem the Brotherhood has had is that, it's intellectually weak as an organization. Think about think about who you know from the Brotherhood from recent decades. They don't have big thinkers. There's an intellectual deficit.
2: Yeah, they all and got killed off.
3: I think are Sorry.
2: They all got killed off. Like Sayyid you, you mean like back in the day? Yeah, back in the day, Sayyid Qutb and them. Anyone who literally had a brain, I, I don't know if you. Know those uh, stories like uh, Zainab Ghazali, who was, uh, yeah, right, who wrote the right. book Return of the Pharaoh. I mean, all these was major, Muhammad things. Ghazali,
1: part of the Ikhwan too? yeah,
2: that you wrote the Sira book, yeah. the famous Sira. I okay, think so, That's but then you got be. like, but
1: then some people like didn't like Zawahiri was part of Brotherhood, then he yeah. like went to Al Qaeda,
2: yeah. I mean, they tortured him in prison, so you make a man go crazy in prison, and what's he gonna do? But, He's gonna see his uh, m- most rational option is violence rather than, um, mm. uh, you know. The actual institutions that are set in place to bring about change in, in the government not working.
3: Yeah, but but even but even if you look more recently, then the the question becomes why hasn't the Brotherhood produced intellectuals? And I think one issue is that the old guard of the Brotherhood is a little bit suspicious of too much creativity. It's a big bloated organization, and I think that um, Islamist organizations have to kind of get with it and encourage their young members to think outside the box and to be exposed to ideas outside the Islamist arena. And I mentioned some libertarian ideas that I've noticed amongst some younger Muslim Brotherhood members that 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 is the direction that these groups have to go in. They have to be a little bit more open instead of being quite status quo oriented. I think also, um, sometimes you can be a little bit too gradualist and i think there was there have been mistakes in the past where um islamist groups haven't been pro-democracy enough that under mubarak they they, they didn't want to ever have too much confrontation with mubarak they would push but only up to a limit and i think that undermines the cause of democracy and ultimately if if um From the standpoint of, let's say, religious Muslims who want freedom to express their religion, the only way that's ever going to happen is if there's more democracy in the Middle East. That has to be the starting point for any discussion. Now, if people want something after democracy that's more Islamic or Islamist, you know, then they can vote for that accordingly, peacefully and within the democratic process and nonviolently. But you can't get to that point until you get to a minimal level of democracy. And I think that's where um, that's where the focus has to be for the time being.
2: A, a lot of what I've learned is um, just reading through history and and you know reading through the French Revolution and and the lessons that a lot of countries took away from it is that you know as long as you take care of the basic needs of people, they're not going to revolt. They're not going to they're not going to take um, trying to take power and. As long as, and I hate to say it, I mean, I think Islamists don't have much of a future until, like, those conditions take place. You you have to not be able to provide for the needs of the people. People have to be starving. You know, they have to be brutally oppressed in these things to kind of actually take place. The right socioeconomic conditions have to be in place. Go ahead. Yeah,
0: sorry to cut you off, man. But I'm saying that the way things are now, people have kind of given up on the whole Islamic sentiment of, or Islamists coming into power and being responsible for being the rulers. They kind of gave up on that after Mohamed Morsi thing and Sisi. And, at least in Egypt, I think. And, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, Brother Shadi. But the other thing I think that we have to think about is that you mentioned something very interesting about we need to at least build a bit of a democratic arena in order for people to discuss their ideas. But as you mentioned, as you said there's something very hypothetical, right? And I think that's where the dilemma lies, is that... In the near future, it doesn't seem like there won't be any resistance. There's always going to be resistance because in a Muslim-majority country where people, the the majority uh, or or a decent amount of people may have some traditional values, whether they're cultural or religious, but to some countries or a lot of people of a country, the culture equals religion, right? And when you try to change uh, something from more... Uh, how, why, how should I say? This? If you want if you want to bring it, because to them, if you say democracy, it means you're taking more Islam away from them, right? And what happens is that there becomes a revolt again, and there becomes fighting again, there becomes infighting again. So the situation here that someone has to like, I'm just thinking out loudly, is that is there ever going to be a situation where this can happen, where people are going to come down and be totally calm about giving up their values? Or is this the inevitable, you know, uh wheel that's gonna continue and is kind of expected to be that way, so um Muslims that are surrounding, you know, the uh and the the, the Israeli Palestinian area that they can't really become too powerful and too strong, right? It's like sometimes I'm not trying to be conspiracy theorists, but it seems like there's a lot of busy work happening with the Muslims for them not to actually, you know, take matters into their own hands. Do you understand what I'm saying? Yeah, does certainly. that make any sense? There's,
3: there are international there, there are international pressures and and you know I think we all know that Western powers would prefer that Islamists don't win elections. Of
0: course, they would that-
3: prefer- So I think we know that. But um,
0: and I'm not like putting the blame. To- I'm not sorry to cut you off. I'm not putting the blame on Western powers because that would that would just it's it's at the end. It's all if Muslims want an Islamic government, that's the Muslims' fault if they're not if they're not able to attain it, right? That, that's We could yeah. talk about historical but things. So, but the reason why I'm mentioning that is it's kind of like these these issues are always going to remain because if they didn't remain, then quote-unquote Islamists, and I'm using that loosely, are going to get what they want, right?
3: Well, so this is why I think for, for democracy to work in many Muslim-majority contexts, there has to be room for Islam's role in public life. Otherwise, it's not going to be democratic because in many of these countries, you have Islamist parties that are either um, quite popular or maybe they're the second or third largest party. So they have to be, they have to have the right to participate in a democratic process. And if you don't let them win, or if you don't let them hold power, if they earn it through, legitimately through, through elections, then it can't claim to be democratic. So in that sense, democracy in the fullest sense of the word would accommodate um Islamist ideas um, as long as those ideas are expressed again peacefully and within the Constitution and so on in whatever country it happens to be. And that's what I'm trying to say um, to Western audiences is that you might hate Islamists. No one is asking you to agree with Islamists ideologically, but if you do believe in democracy, then you do have to believe, then you have to accept, the people who you might not like will be voted into power and luckily that's an easier argument to make to Americans and Europeans now because we're dealing with our own version of this. Shadi,
2: Here's the main thing though it's from the way you're describing the Muslim Brotherhood they're not much of a threat. The west really just cares about a business partner. Can we ha- do we have a viable business partner? Can we have are they going to be people that we can invest in their country and that they can they can invest in their country. Hello? Do we have you?
3: Hey, guys, can you hear me? Sorry, my air, my AirPods died, but can you hear me through the yeah. main yeah. speaker?
2: Yeah. We got yeah. It. yeah, it's better. Actually, it sounds clear. It actually sounds clear. Yeah.
1: <laughs> 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 it sounded like you took a whiff of a blunt. Oh my! <laughs> so, so <tough. laughs> so, like, trans, like what the heck was that? <laughs> Sounds like electronics. electronic mad mum looks. Man, man I, need to take all, I need to get high.
2: <laughs> all right.
3: So I, your, I think your question was about is the Muslim the Muslim Brotherhood is not really a threat. Yeah,
2: the Muslim Brotherhood and Islamists in general, as you describe in the book, they're not really. I mean, they're not going to be stopping American businesses or, or European Union businesses to invest in their country or. You know, uh, they're, they're not going to be difficult the to The most work they'll with. do is a boycott if Why not just happens? let them, you know, why not let them just do their thing? And, you know, as long as you're a viable trading partner, at the end of the day, money is, is what matters, right? And to uh, countries all around the world is, uh, can I do business with this person? Can I um, send them uh, weapons and whatever else I'm exporting to uh, the Muslim world? Will they still buy it? That's well, it.
3: So that's a good point, and especially if you look at, say, Saudi Arabia, which is, um, which has been pretty theocratic for a while. Yeah, like for we, the window there, dressing is there. That's not a deal breaker for yeah. us to have a government that is, um, that implements aspects of Sharia and so on. Whatever else you think about the Saudis, they do, you know, there is, there is a theocratic element there. But the issue with groups like the Muslim Brotherhood, from an American standpoint or a national security standpoint, is on foreign policy uh, vis-a-vis Israel, vis-a-vis American regional interests, um, will they play ball? Are they going to be disruptors? I think that it becomes more a question of interests. Um, I thought it,
2: I thought it was more of like just maintain the status quo as long as you can, and it seems like that's what Saudi Arabia is really looking for. Like, hey, don't people don't change stuff? Al Jazeera, you shut down. Let's make it the way it was in the 1970s. Is that accurate?
3: That's oh, Yeah, that's the other part of it, too, that we're, Saudi Arabia is a close ally of ours, again, for better or worse, yeah. and they're as anti-brotherhood as you can get. I mean, the funny thing is that Muslims are more anti-brotherhood or anti-Nahdar, or any of these, any of these groups, oftentimes more than the U.S. is. I mean, no one is more anti-brotherhood than the UAE. And then there is this question of how deferential should we be to our allies in the UAE or Saudi Arabia and so on. So I think there's a lot of geopolitical issues that complicate it. That said, I do think that otherwise well-meaning Americans, they're just instinctively uncomfortable with religious parties, especially a religious party that's Islamic, because they're just not on the same page. It feels foreign. It feels like it's a little bit too different than what people are used to. So I think that does enter, enter into the perception. There is a bias there. I mean, generally speaking, American policymakers are more comfortable with people who are like them. Like when they're having these bilateral, bilateral meetings, someone who is more liberal oriented, more westernized, you know, speaks English really well, although there are obviously Islamists who speak good English. But generally, but there there is a kind of affinity if you're talking to people who are more secular or more, quote unquote, liberal.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of like I was I think it was a forum uh, that Brookings actually put on. I was listening, watching it on YouTube. Um, I think it was, was Thomas Friedman. Maybe he was talking about Mohammed bin Salman. Yeah, that's and hard. you know, and it was it might, was he the right person, and, and he was kind of it was more positive, like because of his. Well, we don't. It's like we don't know yet, but the trend seems to be going in a more liberal outlook. Even though, like a lot of people would complain about, well, he's also imprisoning people, or he just. But from from the other from from the vantage point, is like well, he just slammed down on corruption. What I found really interesting, though, is like some of my Muslim friends who I would consider to be more liberal. But they're just, they've always been anti-Saudi, so even though Salman is like, for example, I just I don't know if this is true or not. He said something about like he's allowing women to dress much more loosely, and he's now he's using that as being critical, even though his own wife doesn't even wear hijab, right? But it's more like an anti-Saudi thing that is carrying over from like previous like regimes, right? Um, I I just thought I I just, and with that being said, I'd like to get your thoughts on where do you think. A Saudi Arabia's heading, um, and how that affects, like, you know, both the West and also Muslims from a both, like, maybe who are, who don't care as much, but also Muslims who are maybe more practicing. I know you alluded to earlier how, like, practicing religious Muslims in Turkey would be pro Erdogan, for example. How do you see that shaking out for, uh, the Saudis?
3: I'm just thinking about the best way to answer it because, yeah. I, well, one thing is I don't have a good sense of what religious Muslims think about Saudi Arabia. I, I, I remember there have been times where I've been critical of Saudi Arabia back in the day, and someone would be like, well, they're the custodian of the two holy mosques, and this is where we go for <laughs> Umrah. Like, don't be too critical of them, Shadi. I don't think you hear that as much anymore because there's a sense that um, with the new Saudi leadership, they're going in a bit of a different direction. I think the biggest issue with Saudi Arabia is that they're just pretty authoritarian. And putting aside how they view Islam, um, they also promote authoritarianism abroad. They also are involved in the destructive war in Yemen. So, um, so I think that you have to look at the full picture. And who supported the coup in Egypt in 2013, which was anti-democratic, obviously. Then um, Saudi Arabia was very involved in kind of stoking sentiment um, against Morsi because they saw Morsi as a threat to their regional interests. Saudi Arabia is not willing to compromise on Iran. I'm, not, I'm no fan of Iran, but Saudi Arabia has a pretty maximalist approach to Iran and its nuclear program, and that's one reason they get along with Donald Trump. So I think these are all things that have to be brought up, and we should be careful not to fall into this thing, well, oh, uh Women are, are having more rights. I think there are positive developments in Saudi Arabia. I think it is positive that women can now drive. But S- Saudi Arabia under MBS is also becoming more authoritarian and is cracking down more aggressively on dissent. So we can't we can't let the PR drive us too much because there's other very troubling things happening now both inside of Saudi Arabia – and also in Saudi Arabia's foreign policy
0: for the layman and for the West kind of just to let them know that they're letting women drive. I know it's a weird thing. We have to talk about women being a lot of 2000, <coughs> allowing to drive in 2018, but that's just, uh, people think that that's, that's a, a huge achievement. And at the same time, there's a lot of other crazy things like the war in Yemen you were talking about is happening. It's kind of like a distraction, you know, um, that more rights are being given to people and. But in, in actuality, there's a lot of a lot of shady business going on, um, that the average person who's not really in touch with you know what's happening politically doesn't really care about the other things, you know.
1: I actually think that like Shadi asked a question about he when he mentioned the scenario that you you really don't know how religious Muslims think about Saudi, and I think it, it just depends what you ask, it right? Does. It very uh, much. It like depends. depends on what kind of like if you ask an HT guy, he oh, would be like these guys are like
2: Taguts. When I was in HT, yeah. the most irritating question was so you guys want an Islamic state why don't you just buy an island and, and s- set up a you know an Islamic government over there you know and that would be the most enraging question because <laughs> they didn't understand the concept of a state and why a state needs to be needs to have enough power to actually defend itself de- protect the rights of Muslims and have um, a, a nucleus of of Islamic theology as its backbone right right but they didn't understand that they were just Kind of thinking about the, 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 the window dressing that Saudi Arabia and Iran have. And they're like, oh, well, you want an Islamic state? Hey, look, go buy an island. You know, <laughs> Sorry, there. You, you, yourself like Saudi. I'll donate I'll give you guys some money. That was like the most <laughs> irritating question.
1: <laughs> no, but like, I've always seen like, like when people talk about Saudi, it's always like people, like certain Muslims who are conservative religious, be like, Saudi Arabia, they're corrupt. They're like devil regime, et cetera, shayateen, et cetera. And then from the other side, like my, my so Shadi, so after my foray in Republican politics, I became like a hardcore Salafi, the kind of Salafi that was apolitical and like bowed down to the Saudi regime.
2: Well, what would you say if (laughs) if I, okay, let's just say I went back to my Islamic roots and I was uh, talking to Mahin with with that mindset and I asked you about Saudi Arabia having a interest-based economy. How would you rationalize that? Who, to me? Yeah, to you. You're backing Saudi, right? Yeah, but because I'd be like, listen, we, they're still a Muslim
1: government, and you know we overlook their shah. We, we we just make sure that that we let the ulama, the ulama are aware of it, and they advise them in private, and we shouldn't be causing a fuss about it in public because that keru is worse than you know any kind of. They'll cause more fitna, and we would say King Salman or King Fahd is not worse than Al Hajjaj. <laughs> <laughs>
3: I do think there is this, this, in my view, unfortunate strain in the Islamic tradition, which is quite deferential to authoritarian rulers in the interest of stability, of avoiding chaos or fitna. That as long as they're Muslim, that you just kind of have to, you, you kind of have to go along with it and accept that they're repressive or whatever. And this is where I think this the strain of Salafism that you're referring to which is still very much there, Salafis who are more quote-unquote quietist, and at least Saudi Arabia is somewhat supportive of Salafism abroad, so they're down with that. Yeah, and, and I, I
2: think I would respond to Mahin as, you know, you're being a government stooge. That's that's what a government stooge would say. Um, so <laughs> th- 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 that's it. Th- That's what the rhetoric was back then. When we were young, um, you know, Mahin was into Salafism, I was into Islamism, and you know, everyone was doing their thing. Sheikh Ahmed went to go study, uh, at Al Azhar around that time. Um, but, but that, that's the, the, that was kind of the fervor where we were debating ideas. And now we kind of like, uh, oh, we're older, we got kids. Well, there, there's still cats like that in Germantown. Go back to Philly, go to Germantown.
1: You know, yeah. you'll, you'll still, you'll still roll up in there and, uh, See, like, it was really crazy because you have African American people talking about African American converts talking about allegiance to Amir al uh, Malik Salman. Uh, <laughs> are you seriously? I'm, I'm, dead, I'm dead
0: serious. Oh, this is Germantown he's talking about, yeah.
1: Yeah, this is like, if you, if you go to Germantown, go to like, uh, uh, go to Masjid Sunnath Nabawiya. Uh, Rashid and I actually paid a visit there just to like check
2: it out, and uh, it was, uh, that's Rashid Dar. We did an episode with. Uh, by the way, for the listeners, Rashid Dar, who we did an episode with, do you remember what episode number that was? <laughs> episode eighty. Episode eighty. He uh, we used to work with uh, Shadi Hamid as well. So, uh, yeah, a was, uh, uh, he,
3: he was my uh, research assistant for a while, and he, he's great. And we co-authored a bunch of pieces together. Yeah. Uh, so he's actually I think the first person who mentioned Mad Luke's to me. Yeah. And now it's just spreading like a wildfire. Everybody's talking
2: about it now. Oh, man. It's so humbling. Like, we were just a bunch of idiots kind of talking and uh, shooting the bleep. And, you know, we don't really – we're not really scholars in anything. We're kind of jack of all trades. We love it's everything. He's a shrink,
1: He's an Alama. And
2: yeah, he he kind of yeah, gave right. us the credibility <laughs> we, we needed because – or else people would have just said these guys are idiots and kind of – And even that, he's a loser and top of all that. So <laughs> no, we're, <yeah>.
0: we're actually <laughs> – you're probably regretting that you actually had to come and talk to us, right? No, no. <laughs> His whole career
1: goes down the drain. And like, but, I, but back to Saudi Arabia, I, I feel like all Muslims can. Agree, I would assume that most Muslims would agree that, like, listen, we just want a safe place to go for Hajj and Umrah, right? We don't want instabi- We don't want like crazy instability where we can't go for Hajj and Umrah. Yeah, that's right. But saying. although some cats will say, "Well, we would feel let's feel the pain for a few years, and not go, and then as long as it fixes itself." Yeah. I've heard some people say yeah, that. My, myself,
2: when when I was an issue, I would I would have totally taken that uh, two years without Hajj and Umrah. Sure. If, if if that if that allowed the next hundred years of of uh, Islamic governance, I would take that in a heartbeat.
1: Yeah. So one question, I you know, Amr, you guys mentioned about Hassan al banda in the 30s, trying to recreate and like all this stuff about what does a a state look like as an end goal? But like you're only a generation removed from the Ottoman Empire at that time, right? Couldn't you just look back, like talk to people who were involved in the Ottoman Empire and be like what did y'all do? like, Or at least reverse-engineered See, it?
2: The yeah, the Ottoman Empire was much different towards the end. Go, uh, yeah, I don't so, know if you specialize in that, Shadi.
3: Yeah, I mean, so in, in the last decades of the Ottoman Empire, it was moving in a more, quote-unquote, westernized uh, direction. I think something that... Um, so I think one big problem is when you start to codify Islamic law. Islamic law is not meant to be codified, and by that I mean and i always and i get this question a lot from americans who aren't familiar with islam is what is sharia and where do we find it the point of sharia is that you can't find it anywhere it's not in a book um it's not written down in statutes and provisions and and i think there's the western conception of law is that you read you can read it somewhere and um it's clear um but as you, as as you guys know the islamic tradition evolves in a much more organic way and um Islamic law is contained in, you know, uh, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of commentaries and, um, you know, ver- books by different scholars who are talking about different regions and their ideas might apply to certain regions, but not to others. But the, the Ottoman Empire in its in its final decades moves in this direction of codifying law. And I think that that is, you know, by itself. A bit of a concerning thing and this is actually i think a problem that a lot of islamists have they talk about the application of islamic law and they're thinking about islamic law in a more western way that it's something that is clear that you can apply
0: so there's i just want to just chime in a little bit i understand what you're talking about but i've heard mentioned i've heard uh, many individuals like raza aslan himself say that you know, where's Sharia, it can't be found. So there's, and I know what you're trying to say, what the the mindset that you're trying to relay is the following, that when the time changes, for instance, 2018, the way we applied a rule or a regulation from the text, whether it be the Quran or the Sunnah, the variation may change in 2018, right? Now, what do I mean by that? So, in the previous generations I mean, I know I'm probably just singing to the choir but just for the benefit of the listeners when after the generation during the generation of the Sahaba when Muhammad had you know basically handpicked for instance Abdullah ibn Mas'ud and the Hanafis take from Abdullah ibn Mas'ud Abdullah ibn Umar who the Malikis take from Abdullah ibn Umar Abdullah ibn Abbas who kind of the Shafi's and the uh, Hanbali's and they all kind of take from each other they were a they fit a system of extrapolating rules and uh, and, and and legal dicta from the Quran and the Sunnah itself, and they document it down in in covers. Right now, when people say that you can't find Sharia anywhere, you know that's actually not true. Is because that's what actually the Madhab Ibn Hanifa is. Right, it's all the documentation. Right after Salah Zakat Soman Hajj, the first chapter is what buying and selling different types of contracts. After that, you'll have, for instance, inheritance, how you're supposed to inherit it, judge, how the judge is supposed to conduct himself, how the criminal himself, what type of criminals are there, how many types. Now, yes, there may be four different types of legal dicta that's extrapolated from the Quran and the Sunnah, which is what we refer to as fiqh, right? So that's actually there, and people applied that. The the Turks actually applied Hanafi fiqh for 700 years, right? The Egyptian government, even until now, applies... In their, in their legality, in their courtrooms, Hanukhi, Fiqh, except for like four articles that they have basically taken out and they utilize something, you know, something more contemporary. So to be quite, yeah, so so what what I mean by all of this is that that's actually what Fiqh is, right? Fiqh is actually what people want implemented of what, how people like the Tabi'een understood from the Sahaba. Now, are there certain things that are subject to change? In our, in our, in our century, of course. But the core of all of those things in the Sharia, right, are there. Now, there's another misconception. And I'm not saying from yourself, but sometimes our listeners, of what the Sharia actually is. Well, there's three things that make up the Sharia. There's a Sharia, aqidiyah that have to do with all the Quran and Sunnah that has to deal with belief, right, and no, nothing that has to do with action. Like Allah is one, right? That's the belief. Muhammad mm-hmm. Sallallahu Alaihi final messenger. Angels and all that good stuff, right? And then you have the Sharia, al of something that we discuss as far as purification of the soul. What are the modes that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala uses in the Quran? Ghaz Muhammad S.A.W. referred to those things that have to do with, loosely used, spirituality. And then the third portion of the Sharia is what, contemporarily in English, what we say Sharia Allah. The 500-some verses that have to do with Fiqh, which all the Fiqh madhabs are based off of, and all the Hadith that actually explain all the legality behind that so that documentation is put down from the first generation next generation works with it tries to be critical of it and comes down and comes down until it's bound between books and judges have been using it governments have been using it khalifas have been using it kings have been using it for god's sake Hass- let <laughs> Hass- government was using that in their courtrooms right so it's actually there right? The Sharia is actually documented there. Now, are there different ways of understanding the Sharia? Of course, right? But because of the Turks, um, the majority of the ummah was applying in their courtrooms Hanafi fiqh, which is an understanding of the Sharia, right?
3: Yeah, so I I totally agree. And I would just maybe, um, to clarify what I was saying earlier, that not that you can't find Sharia, but you can't you can't find it in one place. There's no kind of ready-made version. That said, of course, if you decide to be, uh, a you know, part of a madhab, if you're a Hanafi, then you can figure out what the what the Hanafi ijma or consensus is on X, Y, and Z issues. But part of the issue now is that most Muslims do not, in any kind of explicit or conscious way, belong to a madhab, so it becomes difficult. Or, to, for, or a school of law. Um, no, that, they could uh, find
0: it, right? They just don't know how to follow it. But they can find it. It's there. It's readily available through the madhubs. But it's still there. They can I, find it. I think
1: it. what Shadi talking about, though, also is, like, correct me if I'm wrong. Like, in, a, in an American context, there's not something like the Constitution, right? Exactly. Yeah. Right? That's, I think that's the point he's trying to make. If, there isn't, like, a Constitution. Like, even the Maliki School, there isn't, like, one book. Exactly. There might be a couple of books you might start with, but, like, there isn't, like, a list of, like, I just can't walk in and be like, I want to be a Maliki, and then...
0: Yeah, what book do I read to be Sharia uh, literate? Well, you would start off... So, Sharia, so, I guess... What we're we have to define like, what we mean here. Right? What,
2: so what the the way that a lot of people, at least in America, envision Sharia is is that there's a Sharia constitution that they're gonna look up, they're gonna find some scroll that they'll find in uh, Gandalf's library, right? <laughs> and they're gonna open that up and they're like, ah, this is the the hidden stuff that the Muslims were talking about. And so are you talking? So when you're talking about
0: Sharia again, I want to know because I think we're we're uh, having an issue with term terminology here. When we're saying Sharia. Are we talking about something like the Bill of Rights? Are we talking? What are we talking? That's about? what they're thinking. They're thinking yeah. about. They're, they're thinking about like a document, a like constitution, or Bill
1: of Rights. Where it's like Second Amendment, uh, chop hands when this happens, uh, cut heads when this happens.
0: I mean, that's there. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Stone there, happens, but there's right. different madhab that have discussed it. Right, right, it. but, but they've, they've documented all of that. Yeah, yeah no, but, but
2: there's no constitution like uh, in terms of this is what we've all agreed on. Yeah, and this is how everything is going to be implemented. It's
0: not about what all of us have agreed on, but every Islamic entity, whether it was the Abbasis or the Ottomans, mm-hmm. they all had it in
2: their own writing, based on their mother. They had they had their own Islamic uh, Sharia constitution, of course. Okay, but well, that's what Fiqh is.
3: But, but well, here here's here's a problem. So let's take for let's take something that we we know is in the Quran that you, you just mentioned, cutting off the hands of thieves. Right. Now, um, to use a controversial example, right. now <laughs> there is a there, there is a historical ijma on those kinds of things, and but the problem becomes so i personally don't believe that those punishments should be applied any longer even if the conditions are met and obviously historically speaking there are a lot of conditions that would that that you would have to meet before certain punishments could be of course met. and the issue now is that we're in a time and we have to historic, well maybe this is this is where i think a lot of the challenges is, challenges come there are many american muslims but also muslims more generally who um who are willing to historicize certain punishments as no longer being applicable so when someone says sharia says that you have to cut off the hands of thieves i as an individual muslim can say that's not that's not i don't i don't think that's what sharia says then we have a problem so we have a decentralization of authority and we have more muslims who are willing to say well just because there was a hanafi ijma on apostasy i'm not exactly sure what the what the hanafi position is exactly on apostasy but i assume it's pretty punitive you know a lot of people aren't down uh, aren't down with that so to speak
0: yeah so uh, so okay now i know a direction that this is going so what when it comes and i know that we're not going to elaborate too much on this but you know that's where the the individual who's responsible whether you call him the president, whether you call him the Khalifa, or even the judges themselves, based on that time and place, this is what we're talking about: is who are the people that can null those certain uh, uh, rulings and replace it. There are certain things that are replaceable and certain things that are irreplaceable, right? Usually, when it comes to belief, there's not you can't really replace that. You can't, if you're trying to distinguish yourself by being an Islamic government, you can't say Allah is no longer your creator and the, the sentiment behind our government is going to run behind that, then that's no longer an Islamic government, right? But then there's certain things that have to do with legality which are subject to change, right? And I think that's more along the lines of what you're talking about, possibly, exactly. is that these things are, 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 comes up to the hakim at this point, the ruler at this time, to rule out certain things, right, or c- keep certain things based on the the atmosphere and how bad people may need something or how bad they don't need something, Right.
3: Yeah, and there's also, I mean, um, and obviously people can disagree about how far to take this, but there's a, there's, I mean, in practice, there is a workaround in Islamic law. It's, you can, you can use maslaha arguments. In other words, arguments for the public interest. Of course. To get around certain things. I mean, that's what the brotherhood does on interest. Oh, yeah. And why the brothers and the
2: moon sighting <laughs> oh my and God. a whole lot of other things that <laughs> us HTs continue, did, made continue. fun of about. Continue, continue. We don't want you about. to lose track, brother. <laughs> Go Shady. ahead, keep going. That <laughs> was just want, a distraction. If you
3: really want an IMF loan, <laughs> there's a way to justify an IMF loan. Yeah,
2: yeah, and that's that's one of the the things that uh, everyone actually kind of joked about. Juan about that they use Musleh uh, a little bit too liberally, and yeah. that uh, they kind of uh, got carried away with it. Even just, I think a lot of people who. Are um, realizing or see some of the effect that Ikhwan had in America regarding Muslims, like things like calculations in, in in terms of moon sighting. That you know, a lot of Muslims don't subscribe to calculations, uh, and there are a whole lot that do. And I think this whole concept was kind of made popular by Ikhwan right? Well, in light of that, it seems sure like though. It popular, to be with you. you don't think so? No, I don't know who made it popular. To be, I honest mean, be. I, in terms <laughs> of in terms of the ikhwan's influence. And now, no, no one really identifies themselves as Muslim Brotherhood in America in terms of their, um, in terms of like Isna and Ikna and all these major Fiqh councils that have kind of propped up. But there, the uh, the ideas were kind of flowed down to the immigrants over here, right? Mm, through, I, I so everyone through kind major Iqani scholars, their kind of like one of Ijuani, yeah. Well, I mean, wouldn't you say like uh, major Ikhwani scholars? Uh, made those ideas popular, at least? Well, they
1: also say that, like, people, the Muslim Brotherhood, like, Isna, MSA National, these organizations Iqna, are all offshoots of, like, Islamist... It's, like, basically the, the immigrants
0: that That's came over. That's what Pamela
2: Geller says. So also Salafis, no, too. No, but we have to be
0: straightforward. So, the way Pamela Geller talks about it and we talk about it is different, right? A lot of these groups, actually, were started by by those individuals who had an Ikhwan training or Ikhwan mindset when they came to the States, right? Right. not MSA... I mean, YM is Jamaat Islami, basically, right? Right. Like, Iqna is Jamaat Islami. I mean, it's not a secret. Everybody knows that. Yeah. Right. I'm not In terms like, of the original founders. Yeah, I'm not saying that, I'm not saying something that's confidential or a yeah. top secret. Everybody knows that. Yeah. That, Moonside, anything? I don't know if they're the ones who started that. But, but I think that
1: the issue is that, like, which you kind of alluded thing, I mean, to, is that the whole, like, Ikwan coming up with this maslaha, okay, they're loosely following maslaha. Huh? You know, they probably had scholars that said, okay, sure, you can do that. But then other people would be like, Oh, our scholars say y'all are sellouts. And so, like, with that, the greater theme is like, so how can you even, like, I mean, I know a lot of listeners had this question to us was like, in spite of all these differences, do you think that, this is the Shadi, do you think that, like, a, a modern day caliphate's a pipe dream now? Because we can't even agree on, like, structure, right? Everyone's got their own idea of what the right approach is. And because Islam is so decentralized, there isn't, like, one, we don't have, like, the Pope, right?
3: Yeah. So a caliphate, you know, requires a central figure to some extent, even if the caliph, the caliph himself is relatively weak and there are regional governors historically and all that. I mean, I, I you know, it's just very hard to have that level of uniformity. Um, so I, I'm not even talking from a normative standpoint, just on what is realistically possible. I mean, but also I would just put it out there and say, you know, a caliphate is not really. It's not really what Muslims should be spending a lot of time thinking about. I mean, what they, I mean, so right now the issues facing Muslims are much more, are much more obvious and proximate and have, and are very, and have, have a lot to do with the most basic issues like human rights, whether you can kind of just walk to the street and not be persecuted. I mean, we're, but who you know,
2: else? Who uh, else is going to secure the rights of Muslims, like in Burma and Palestine and you know Yemen, where you know? I think what you're saying we, is we got problems in America that we can't even. No, but I'm well. Right? Like, I, I, I can understand where Shadi's coming from in terms of American Muslims, right? But in yeah. terms of the priorities of the global Muslim world, right? Yeah, uh, and I understand you, what Shadi's saying in terms of what our list of priorities is, but um, in terms of what our when you're thinking globally. And you well, remember that one thing? Hamad would always say. He'd say, "Think locally, work globally." Yeah, work locally. Think, think globally. Work locally. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, in terms of that, I'm kind of thinking, yes, Shadi's right in terms of our immediate concerns. Like, just are the injustices around us right in terms of what's going on at the border in at Mexico and and uh, you know the different injustices that are happening throughout the country. Yes of course i i totally agree with you but in terms of our islamic identity how or what else would protect our interests is my question what yeah. well because every state right now is you know, they're looking out for themselves. Saudi Arabia's looking out for themselves. They're kind of, they're building an island around Qatar right now. It's you not know? that. They're, they're, well, that's the most ridiculous idea, you know. <laughs> <laughs> the idea of a country just making one another country a sovereign nation. Hey, guess what? You're an island now. <laughs> and, and guess what? It's going to be a canal that we're going to tax everyone who goes through this. And you're not going to get a penny of those taxes either. That's that
3: crazy. is. Uh, yeah. But here's the thing. I mean, so what, a- one thing is that. You can't undo the nation state. And I I think from just regardless of what what some Muslims think is ideal, um, the nation state is a reality. And to undo these realities would require, first of all, a lot of time and effort, but also, unfortunately, it would probably require violence. And so I I think we just have to be realistic that the nation state is going to be with us. Now, there can be modifications to the nation state model. Um, and I think a more realistic way of talking about Muslim unity is like something, again, like the EU. If Muslims want to get together in different Muslim majority countries, um, they, they, um, they find a way to give more power to a transnational organization like the EU on, say, monetary policy, on setting the currency and things like that. But this idea that you could truly have something resembling the old caliphate, I, I just I just don't know I I just don't see any realistic way that Muslims can work work towards that even if they really, really want it. And if they did want to work towards it, it's gonna cause a lot of division because Muslims don't agree on whether a caliphate is even necessary. Mm-hmm. It's become more of a minority concern. How many Muslims do you meet in kind of a more mainstream setting? Who are really like all about the caliphate.
2: Yeah. I mean, you're absolutely right. It's not that many. And, but, but the overall general sentiment is leaning towards that because they're losing faith in a lot of countries that they formerly had a lot of faith in, like Saudi Arabia or Iran coming through to the aid of, of Muslims. You're, you're definitely on point on that. And I mean, uh, it's without a doubt. But what I've seen now, at least, is, um, there was always, uh, Kind of a rivalry between scholars and and um, Islamic movements, and now you're seeing a lot of Islamic scholars from around the world talking about Islamic governance, and it's no longer become something that's a taboo subject. And so, from that perspective, I see that when 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 you see the scholars kind of getting a little bit bolder about it, there you mean, you know that there is a concern that's kind of developed. Like, okay, none of these countries are really going to take care of our affairs other than an entity doesn't have to be a transnational caliphate, but it has to be some kind of country within borders that is uh, trying to grow its influence, trying to in whatever capacity it can, right. It doesn't necessarily have to be uh, um, a transnational caliphate, but it could have like, you know, satellite countries like um, Russia does kind of, you know, at least with its former uh, countries that it used to occupy.
3: So I would just say, and this might this might come off as being a little bit of a of a a one eighty from
1: what you're talking about, yeah, but if, yeah. if if
0: the and goal that's is, and that's
2: cool, I, I totally respect yeah, that. Yeah, dude, ahead.
0: we're we're totally, we're not gonna yeah. hang up on you yet. <laughs>
2: <laughs> hey, hey, by the way, who would be our Angela Merkel if we had an EU? Angela, Mer-
1: the, uh, okay. Sheikh Khalid, uh, the Bangladesh Prime Minister lady.
2: Oh, oh. Yeah,
1: Sheikh Hasina, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Shout yeah, out Alicia. to Sheikh Hasina. She, I want me leak for the win. Uh, <laughs> Bangladesh cats are going to crucify me now. No, man.
2: You guys, you guys are rebels in the East Pakistan. <laughs> anyway, you guys sorry. Deserve, go ahead. You guys don't deserve a place in the new we're, state. We're getting off track. I, sorry, I didn't never see
3: said. the Sheikh Hasina shout out coming. I, 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 That caught me off guard.
2: But,
3: <laughs> <laughs> but look, so there, there is one country that has occasionally, granted it, it – it hasn't done this a lot, but it's done it a couple times, protecting Muslim civilians from repression and genocide. You guys might see where I'm going with this. There is one country that does have the ability to use force, and if they used force in a more appropriate way, then there there could be movement in this direction.
2: And you're talking about Turkey? America? <laughs>
3: <laughs> the u.s uh, oh, yeah. oh oh you're
2: i thought you're talking about muslim countries yeah okay well, no,
3: but, but if the goal is really to okay a bunch of muslims are being slaughtered and there isn't a there isn't realistically a muslim country that's going to do anything about it and this is precisely what happened in libya it happened in bosnia it happened in kosovo yeah, absolutely I would argue to some extent it happened in kuwait i i think that saddam Trying to erase the Kuwaiti state was unacceptable. And I think the US was right to try to stop that. And these are cases where, um, you know, as not, I'm not even saying as Muslims because my issue isn't with, with, um, genocide or mass slaughter of Muslims per se. It's with genocide and mass slaughter of, of people. And if the US is, if the US is able to stop that and no other country is willing to step up and do that, That at least temporarily is something that I think American Muslims should be more comfortable with. And that's precisely what my position was on Syria.
1: I feel like American Muslims are kind of schizophrenic when it comes at when one end they're like, we want Americans to get involved. We want America to get involved. And they're like, no, we don't want the meddling.
2: That's true. I mean, it's one of the things is that, you know, America is usually going to get involved when it's for their interests right i mean it's not well
1: that's that's the case of any country though right every country is mm-hmm. going to do
2: what well that's what their the islamist uh, narrative is that the 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 state would get involved no matter if it is uh their interests are aligned or not they because it's a muslim issue they would be involved in it and if they have the capacity to do so they would be um they would be doing or making some kind of action towards it
3: an Islamist party is still going to play the game if they're in power. And I think we saw some of this with Morsi. And this is, this was a criticism from the Syrian Muslim Brotherhood in 2012, 2013 to the Egyptian Brotherhood. They're like, Hey, you guys are in power now. Why aren't you doing more to support the Syrian revolution? Mm. Instead, you're kind of inching up a little bit to Iran and trying to establish relations with them. And Iran is the very country that is supporting the mass killing of Syrian civilians. So I think that you can see examples of how even countries that take, or or parties or movements that take very seriously this idea that they represent in some way the Muslim ummah, at the end of the day, interests are going to play a very major role. Look at Iran. Um, Iran has, Iran claims to be an Islamic uh, republic. But when you look at their foreign policy, doesn't look very Islamic
2: that's that's exactly I mean you're you're really just making me remember back to when I was young in part movements just exactly why I would discredit all these other countries and why um, we should ever look to them for any kind of solution uh, even the Muslim Brotherhood just um, I think they when Morsi got into power he was trying to engage with Saudi Arabia and Saudi Arabia was you know kind of Smiling at them while holding a knife behind their back and saying, you know, yeah, yeah, Morsi, we love you. Welcome to, you know, welcome to uh the new Egypt and um we're, we're here to support you and uh, we'll give you some money as well. And then uh, while with their other hand, they were funneling uh or sp- sending advice to Sisi to, you know, overthrow him.
1: Yeah, my, my my former and current self would probably still just to think that it's all a waste of time. Just just worry about, like, praying and, like, reading Quran and, like,
0: no, you, you're going to be dead in 60 years anyways. That That's kind of understandable, dude, because people who can't analyze even, they're like elites that can actually track every analysis that's actually going on. A lot of times, the majority of the people don't really know. Their, their main source is just Fox News or Al Jazeera or whatever, and they're going to take everything and they're going to think that's what's happening in the world, right? There's... A lot more than is happening so someone could definitely get fl- you know flustered and just you know aggravate and be like you know what I'm not even gonna deal with this dude I have nothing to do with this I'm just gonna leave it to the specialist this is just how life is supposed to be and that's what they leave it at
1: dude. yeah I think would you like you know you I mean
2: you should have a concern for the
1: global nation I was cu- right
2: I, w- I was curious from Shadi's perspective on what the biggest mistake Morsi made is there is there one big mistake or is there just a whole lot of little mistakes
3: so in retrospect or well, Yeah, just by retrospect, we,
2: I mean, you can't we can't go back and um, change the, the past. But what, what I'm thinking.
3: Yeah, so running for president, I think that knowing what we know now, yeah. that's not something the brotherhood should have done. Mm. Granted, at the time, there were reasons that um, there were legitimate reasons from the brotherhood standpoint to run at the time. But what we know is that the brotherhood was simply not prepared To govern a country as messed up and unwieldy as Egypt, especially when the military and, you know, other deep state elements were were very powerful and influential. I don't think no one, anyone would have had a lot of trouble dealing with that. Um, I think also failing, um, failing to govern inclusively. I mean, um, Morsi and the Brotherhood, they veered rightward when they were in power. They felt pressure from the Salafis on their right flank. They dismissed liberals and leftists as being irrelevant. They weren't able to build a stable pro-revolution coalition. Yeah, and the Salafis turned against them, and um, in a very, in a very, I think, um, and the Salafis were never down with the kind of idea of, you know, a you know revolution or really focusing on democracy and, and all that. Um, I think, but if you go even, even if you go back further, if we're talking about the Egyptian, the Egyptian pro-democracy movement from day one, should they have left Tahrir Square on February 11th, 2011? Should they have allowed the military to manage the democratic transition? And knowing what we know historically about how, how incompetent and, and malevolent the Egyptian military has been, was it a good idea for them to be presiding over that process? And they're the ones who sowed a lot of the seeds of the polarization of divide and conquer and and um, playing one group group off the other. They did that masterfully.
2: So yeah, that, you, know, you nailed it. I mean, that's exactly what we were we were taught when we were young that, that you have to have the military backing you. You cannot, no matter what you do, whether you um, you come to power through elections or whatever apparatus is in, that allows you to take power, you have to have the military backing you and you have to have at least uh, a few battalions in your favor, some key influential generals that will definitely put up a fight and protect you. And we saw that just recently. While, um, what was it? Was it two years ago when Erdogan saw the coup attempt? Mm-hmm. You saw that You know, you need... Certain uh, people who are there to back you in case there is a coup. Right. Um, I, w- I want to
1: segue into a different subject real quick. Uh, and we, I, we actually do want to do wrap up kind of soon because we got to pray asr right here. I mean, contrary to proper belief, we are kind of religious. <laughs> and we try to observe our five prayers. <laughs> but, uh, but anyways, uh, so obviously the Supreme Court just upheld the uh, whole Muslim ban. So to speak. Um I've been seeing some messages. so we have a global audience, Chatty. Um and a lot of our like um probably our British viewers and listeners and people in other parts of the world are probably gonna hate this podcast. They're gonna be they'll listen to it all. They'll be like, I mean, you guys are all sellouts, you guys are catering to like liberals, etc. Whatever. But anyways, they Here's see it, the man. Muslim ban as a um are yeah. catering to liberals. Right, right. Yeah. <laughs> they, 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 they will do that. They, oh, they, we'll, we'll, we'll say one sentence, and they will like take that as we, like, out of 110 episodes where we said something completely opposite and accuse of that, right? Shady,
2: we, we get it from the left and the right. We, we, <laughs> we try to be cool with everyone. It's, it's just, uh, oh, you know what? I found out. I put it up on my, my Facebook. I did one of these personality tests. Right. And uh, did you ever do, do one of these uh, Myers-Briggs personality tests, Shady?
3: I've actually, I've never wanted to do it because I don't want to know exactly what my personality is. Well, I found out
2: <laughs> through going to 16personalities.com that I am a mediator. It's called uh, INF, INFP or something. Yeah. And I'm like that. And after reading through all the literature related to that, it perfectly uh, allowed me to have some kind of uh, – clarity. Well, it made me feel a little bit better about myself because I was always confused. I'm like, why the hell do all my friends hate each other? And (laughs) now I'm like, okay, well, (laughs) you are kind of like the middle guy. You're the the guy who tries to get people to like each other. and I kind of felt better about myself after that. I had to put my uh, Russian revolver away. So I'll I'll actually
1: read a tweet. I'll I'll leave the the handle (laughs) unknown, but this is what the tweet says, right? It's like, my sympathy for Americans who will feel effects of hashtag Muslim ban. Otherwise, I'm glad, after decades of American-led anti-Muslim wars, millions of deaths, Guantanamo, etc., you finally get all that flag-waving, and stripes, hijab-wearing, and USA National Pride that got you nowhere. Huh. Whoa. Wow. It's it's, kind of like a middle finger to American Muslims, right? It's like, you guys want to assimilate and do all this stuff, and boom. That's what your country really thinks of you.
3: Yeah, but what do we have to do with Guantanamo? I don't think American Muslims were supporting a lot of the things that this tweet person criticizes. That I mean Muslims were, American Muslims were generally not on board.
1: I think the, the rhetoric is that like we should be like so anti-government because from the get like you know like the fact that uh, I I think people overseas the fact that we have someone like Abdul Rahman Sayed running for governor of Michigan
2: just burns them.
3: Wait, why wouldn't they want that? That's a good thing that American Muslims are getting more involved in politics and trying to.
2: I I think their their fear is that you become assimilated to the point where your identity is lost, and that that's where a lot of the friction is is happening. Shadi, is that the the fear from the conservative side is that when you are part of a majority, when you're a minority, and you're part of a a country that is trying to, you know, put you into the melting pot and um, make sure that uh, you're welcomed, you eventually start losing what makes you you, and uh, you lose your identity. And that that that's exactly what they're they're where they're coming from. They they would cringe when they see a sister wearing an American flag hijab or whatever, you know.
3: Okay, that almost <laughs> makes it sound like you know, whenever you're walking around in the U.S. now, you just see a bunch of Muslim girls wearing. Hijabs with the American flag printed on it. Like I've never seen that. <laughs> I
2: mean, <laughs> I've seen it once. Seen a whole, whole group once. of them, or just one? Seen it once. I've a whole group? It. No, not group, like not a group. Not a group. I saw like one phenomenon. <laughs> yeah. it, it's not. Yeah. It, again, it's there, there's some rhetoric, you know, and you got hey, again. So you look,
3: I, look, I don't know what the the like what a, a a theologian would say about a woman wearing an American flag hijab, but when I see it as a layperson, I'm like, that's pretty damn cool. Uh Oh, (laughs) Uh, well, uh,
2: just, okay. It just, for me, as a, as my American identity, what I've been taught from my own, like, uh, American peers, it just looks like you're trying too hard. You, you kind of look like that, that, that stupid Harley guy, you know putting the american flag bandana on yeah. i'm like you look like an idiot like that you now yeah. that's what i mean that's what it looks like to me And i'm not hating on anyone if you want to wear his american flag hijab that's fantastic more power to you i don't care it doesn't bother like me. american-based scholars it, would be accepting of me, it i think it just looks to me like you're trying too hard as an american
1: i i think the one thing though is like why do you i, I think a lot of folks would say we're just trying to we're, we're, we're just trying to, like, be accepted as... Like, the whole Ben Affleck... Remember when Ben Affleck said, like, Muslims eat sandwiches too? Remember that? Yeah. And we're like, yo, that just... Like, what the hell? Like, that doesn't, like... That's not really a compliment because
0: it doesn't make... Like, so you're like, just trying to validate us as a human being. No, he was yeah. trying to... No, he actually, he wasn't trying to do that. What he was doing was he was trying to say, dude, they're just like you and me. Like, we've painted this boogeyman of them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there's these, these animals of them. They're actually just like you and me. They have problems they have bills they have kids they have to put to school and swimming class and gymnastics class they eat sandwiches just like us too i mean they're just like us that's what that's, he meant that's, yeah, that's he, what he got emotional say. and he couldn't yeah, really he explain this talk. It i mean properly.
2: i know he keep
1: from a good spot but i think it like muslims a lot of muslims like, at least overseas like are could be critical this kind of like very pro-american assimilated narrative would yeah, but, say that that's what you're kind of you, you're being satisfied with that kind of approach when they just they're just you're in the negative and you're just now getting to zero yeah
2: yeah, yeah, yeah so that's inevitable, the, the idea was that every generation will lose a little bit of its identity so if you are playing praying four out of five, uh, out of five prayers your, your kids are going to pray three out of five and then so on and until you lose your identity completely
3: I would, just to counter that i mean i would say that um one of the reasons that american muslims are generally pretty pro-american and all the polling I think shows this much more so than Muslims in Europe. We're proud to be American and openly so that one of the reasons is the the, U, um, the U.S. model, if you will, um, allows people to be both fully Muslim and fully American and not have to choose between dueling identities. Where, let's say France, you can't really be fully Muslim and fully French. French culture sort of asks you to prioritize certain things over others. I mean, especially if you're a woman who wants to express her religion um, through, let's say, wearing the hijab, you know, the obvious, the obvious case. Um, and the U.S. historically is more accepting of public expressions of religion and religiosity. So, you know, if someone is practicing or someone has to kind of, you know, run into their office to pray during the day, that could be a major issue in, in France or other European countries. But I think here there is at least for the most part a tradition of people being like, well, yeah, this is my religious practice. I got, that's something that's important to me. I'm not going to push it on anyone, but it's still important to me. And that's, and that's where I think America is accommodating of that, just as America is accommodating of C- Christian evangelicals doing their thing or Orthodox Jews doing their thing, so on and so forth. So. There is a kind of counter-narrative that the American model is not asking Muslims to stop being Muslim, right?
0: Yeah, I and you know, the, 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 the dilemma with this is that Muslims, a lot of Muslims, especially the women, because they have to display it more if they wear hijab, is Muslims have been cornered. They feel like they've been cornered, especially after this new administration. So they, they're trying to kind of remind people, hey, we're American too, right? that's that's the other dilemma that Muslims are facing it's unfortunate they have to face that but that's that's one thing but as far as the ban is concerned right the yeah. uh, it's it's there's there's a few sides of the argument that are very interesting the first thing is that it's not all Muslim countries right there's only a few Muslim countries amongst the few countries that are there right yeah and people are trying to make it like it's an all Muslim ban first and foremost the other side of the argument is hey listen this country knows that it's meddled in different countries, in separate countries, in many countries, and obviously they know the result of that, and it did breed extre- extremism, and there is a possibility, people from these countries, that what we began, they're going to come back over here, so it would be in our best interest to to not let or, or stop immigration from these countries. Now, I'm not saying this is right and wrong, I'm not saying I agree with any of this, but do you sometimes think it's unfair when people say it's a complete Muslim ban? That's just factually not true.
3: It's certainly not a complete Muslim ban. I mean, I don't have a huge problem. I mean, Argentina's
0: not. in there. Uh, who else is in there? Venezuela?
3: Yeah. But those were kind of added on afterwards. Yeah, they were. It's less Muslim-y.
0: Yeah. So, <laughs> but you know, I mean, how many Muslim countries are in there? Three?
3: I think it's, I think it's six. Yeah. And then yeah. there's Venezuela and North Korea.
0: Are you sure? I think, I think it's, six countries altogether.
3: Uh, Wait, really? Or maybe I mean, quickly Google it.
0: Yeah, yeah I think well, it's only from, three Muslim countries. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay.
3: But here, so um. Um, you know, I, I, I was disappointed. Uh, I think, like, like most American Muslims were with the ru- the Supreme Court ruling. That said, in in reading parts uh, parts of the ruling, I do think there is an argument to be made that the American president has pretty wide-ranging statutory authority when it comes to who can enter the country. So from a from a kind of moral standpoint and a personal standpoint, I'm very disappointed.
2: But legally, think, he's not doing anything wrong. So the the, the countries well, that I are... Think incu-
3: I think from a legal standpoint, there is a case to be made that the, president, the American president does have a lot of leeway in deciding who enters the country. I mean, no one has a right if they're not an American citizen, to enter the U.S. So yeah, when people I'm, are le- comparing legally, it yeah. to um, the 1944 ru- uh, you know, ruling on Japanese-Americans, that to me is not comparable because that was a violation of the fundamental rights of American citizens. That is not really what's happening here. So exactly. I think that
0: we have to be careful about – Saying
3: like this is the worst thing ever, and it's comparable it's, it's to the worst. It's actually not,
0: numbers. man. It's it's. It, I know it. It sucks, and I feel really bad for our brothers and sisters that have families that are banned. How many Muslim countries are in this? Uh, so same? there's
2: uh, North Korea, Syria, Iran, Yemen, Libya, Somalia, and Venezuela. So there's five a, Syri- Yeah, Syria, Iran, Yemen, Libya.
3: So five, but yeah, five countries.
2: My okay. bad. So five, right? But. If,
0: I mean is is that is it I know it's for the Muslim families here that have uh, roots but as as a collective whole as everybody I feel like there's a there's a huge victim card being played here for some reason and I understand the sentiment but to make it like
2: the worst thing that's ever happened yeah, I mean you, you, in Islamic you, look, history, at, you look at I Syria, I mean if you're American uh, and working just looking out for American interests. Syria has a lot of ISIS, okay? I mean, it's just as much as I love Syria, and the listeners know how much I love Syria and how much I talk, try to, to, bring, them, um, try to bring them into but discussion. But you have to yeah, look at
0: it. I mean, we're being very naive here, right? You have to look at it from the mindset of, of, of Americans and as as a president and, and, and everybody else. And I don't agree
2: with it, but why are you surprised, Right. Why are you surprised? I, I think. I'm kind of more surprised about Iran being included. I, I understand some of the, the rhetoric that's kind of going back and forth, but just, um, I guess I, that might have been included. Because of the, the ban, the embargo I, on Iran. might have been done to make Saudi Arabia, Saudi Arabia happy. That too. too. Very true. Mm. Just to show. So,
3: so, okay. He's so, like, where
2: do I start? <laughs> We're
3: about to end so you don't have to these start. These guys are so dumb.
0: <laughs> 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 why did <Why>, I agree? <laughs> why do I always put myself in position with these knuckleheads? <laughs> <laughs>
3: no i actually share some of, i'm i'm kind of torn about this like you are that's on 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 syria the us has has a strong capability to vet anyone who wants to come into the country so and I, and the issue with syria is that now we're denying syrian refugees we should be doing much more to resettle syrian refugees and not just letting germany and other european countries bear the brunt um, the U.S. has a lot of ability to absorb, uh, absorb refugees, and we haven't even come close to what we can do on that. So this idea that S- Syrians, some, you know, Syrians are going to pay the price, or at least some Syrians are going to pay, pay the price and not be able to enter the country as refugees. I mean, that is a, that to me is a big problem. So I get this, you know, so, so Syria to me is not justified. There shouldn't be a blanket ban, and we should, we should, there should be an allowance for refugees who are vetted, and there's nothing to me that I've seen that suggests that we can't vet aspiring, you know, aspiring Syrian refugees, and we don't have the security capability of determining who had an affiliation with ISIS.
1: Yeah, I got you. I think a lot of, as a political scientist, I'd like to get because a lot of folks have this where they're making it seem like what Sheikh Amr was saying, that they make it seem like it's like the worst thing. They're worried about not this ban itself. They're worrying about the be opening up the door and being a slippery slope and extending towards even U.S. citizen American Muslims who yeah, have been here maybe for generations. Sure.
3: sure. I get that concern that it institutionalizes anti-Muslim bigotry and it strengthens the – or it encourages the anti-Muslim sentiments in, in Trump's base. So I, I see it more as problematic politically. But again, if we're talking about legal judgments and what a president can and can't do, I don't think we have as strong a ground to stand on. Maybe in the first, the first version of the Muslim ban or whatever you want to call it, that clearly had an anti-Muslim bias in, in its actual formulation because in that version, Christians could gain an exception – so if you were like a Syrian Christian, then maybe it wouldn't apply to you. But in the second and third versions, that was no longer part of it. So I think we also have to make distinctions between different versions of the ban. Now, the argument of, the argument of people who still think the ban is terrible is that the intent is still there, that we know that Trump is driven by anti-Muslim intent and we have to read the text of the Muslim of, of this travel ban in light of those previous comments. But then it becomes a legal issue of do you judge the text as text or do you try to divine the intent, the original intent behind the text?
1: Yeah, I see. So like – yeah, that makes sense. So like at the same time, couldn't like the next president just issue an executive order overturning it? Yeah. Right? So like yep. – sure. I mean, Trump isn't going to be in
0: office for maximum another six years. Obviously, I don't, I don't like that decision, but I don't think we should be very surprised, right? And but that doesn't mean that people should just sit still if they don't agree with something. But I think there's other modes that people can use to actually get their point across more. Somebody mentioned something to me really interesting. He was also a, a political scientist like yourself, and he said that you know it's a very very simple thing, but um, Muslims actually didn't give me if if they're in this situation now and they want to make the best of it money talks right so what would you say to somebody who said you know if they really want some sway muslims should definitely get some a lot of these organizations to get together and make some major campaign contributions or contributions to the presidency if they want something to be done right
3: so I also don't agree with the premise that Muslims are doing really badly in the U.S. So I saw a bunch of articles the last two days, uh, the last couple of days since the Muslim ban announcement came out from the Supreme Court, that um, Muslims are second class citizens, or this is like one of the worst times to be a Muslim. I think we have to be very careful about that kind of victim mentality and rhetoric. Yes. Um, I think that actually you can make the argument that this is kind of a coming out party for Muslims in the sense that. You know, there are – Muslims are becoming more mainstream. We have one party out of the two parties in America yeah. that now goes out of its way to explicitly defend Muslim rights. That did not happen 10 years ago. True. People were trying to stay away from us. Even Obama was trying to stay away from us. True. Now when people do the whole list of the wonderful tapestry of minorities in America, they almost always include Muslims.
1: I, that, know. That's yep.
3: pretty recent. It is you crazy, know, yeah. When the first draft of the Muslim ban happened in January 2017 and then you had a bunch of like or ordinary Americans who were angry, angry about what Trump was doing, they were protesting at airports while Muslims were praying. So in other words, people weren't scared of Muslims praying in airports, they were cheering them on. This is this these are good developments where and now if you want to show that you're you don't like Trump one of the best ways of doing that is to be pro-Muslim. I'm down with the Muslims. That's how I, that's how I virtue signal. Yeah. So that's, that's interesting to me. There's a bunch of TV shows now that have Muslim characters because everyone's always talking about us. Trump brought us into the mainstream. He started talking about <laughs> his proposed Muslim ban in December 2015. You would look at the TV shows and the pundits. And everyone would be talking about us, yep obviously that 's not all great, but it means that people have to think about us as part of the American fabric,
0: like I said you know before there 's no such thing as negative publicity, man, and he did the <laughs> most publicity, Donald Trump, and I still stay by my statement in the past two years, has drawn more publicity for Islam than any Muslim organization in the United States has ever done.
3: What's an interesting argument. That's, yeah.
2: I, yeah, Honestly, man. Yeah, at least you, knowing the curiosity of the American psyche, how, how curious Americans in general are, just of everything. Yeah. It talks about, you know, how Obama once said, the characteristic of America that no other country has is their ingenuity. And he, he nailed it when he explained that. I mean, this is a... Something, uh, our religion being brought to light has inspired so many people to want to, you know, go buy Qurans and buy, uh, um, uh, you know, research Islam, meet, a uh, meet a Muslim neighbor, go Amen. to their local mosque. We have so many people at my mosque that come to find out about us. And we live, uh, our mosque is in pretty much the heart of, uh, the Harvard of Bible universities, which is Wheaton College. And, there's at least a, a, a church on every block and right in the smack dab in the middle of Wheaton, actually not in the middle, but kind of towards the outskirts. and They didn't accept <laughs> us that much yet. But, <laughs> but towards the outskirts of, of Wheaton is this little mosque surrounded by at least three churches. Yeah, man. I'm telling you, man, Islam has reached every household because of Donald
0: Trump. And one thing I was thinking about the other day is like gain peace. They're doing yeah. some amazing work. But their open mosque days have launched because of Donald Trump's presidency. Yeah. If you think about it, that's mm-hmm. they've been doing a lot of dawah, but they felt obliged to go out and speak out and bring invite people into the masjid, which no one was doing. The public, everyone's coming and gain pieces, just going masjid by masjid in every community yeah, just this... to battle the rhetoric of Donald Trump. You, you
3: want, here's, a, here's an interesting kind of off-kilter example. I'm only bringing it up because it's so... It's a little bit – I was a little bit surprised, but I think it also speaks to what we're talking about. So there's a show that I watch on HBO called Here and Now. Hmm. I think it's actually pretty good. But um, what's interesting is that there is a Muslim family, and they're all basically main characters. Um, but but the um, one member of the family is – get this um, – a tr- a, pr- a transgender practicing Muslim – Who's like fasting and praying five times a day. What? And then there's like a whole debate about whether whether they should wear um hijab because they're sort of transitioning.
2: Oh boy. Are you are you kidding? This is this seems ludicrous.
3: So even something like that, and I it's like partly to troll Donald Trump to Uh like transgender practicing Muslim and hijab. Uh You know, but it's interesting. That some of these debates are coming out into the mainstream, but even the idea of fasting, there's like a fasting subplot during Ramadan in this show on HBO.
2: Wow, is it a, is it even a good show, or did you just I like, watch it for I, the personally,
3: plot? Personally, I like it a lot.
2: It was, see, that, <laughs> one of the things that there's always a criticism, Shadia, of the left is that they have um, they're always forcing things down people's throats, just like you know, even though you're you're kind of saying that. They're kind of poking front for fun at Trump with that show and having the 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 hijabi who's transgendered. It, it just seems like so it seems so forced and like you're really pushing it. And because I actually used that example with just m- messing around with somebody's at work, or just kind of talking about. It, I'm like, next thing you know, the left is gonna peddle a a, a black Muslim transgendered woman who's. um just confused with all these different identities, you know, (laughs) who who has a Latino parent or something like that, you know, or a Latino kid. Yeah. Some way just to like roll up every kind of identity into, into one person. Yeah. yeah. It just seems ridiculous. (laughs) Wouldn't you agree? So I've been
3: criticized quite a bit on the left because I've become a, a bit of an outspoken critic of identity politics. I think it's gotten totally out of hand. There were just, um, and I, I just don't think it's productive for American democracy for us to, um, to kind of just divide, divide the country up into these groups. And then we identify in this kind of very tribal way. I think there's a lot of things that can be said about it, but it's also, it's just over the top. It's performative. It's a lot, a lot of it's virtue signaling. I just saw something on Twitter the other day and I criticized it. There was some kind of, um, thing where you have to fill stuff out for i don't know like law school or some exam or some some, one of those types of things and there were like 10 different options for gender and i'm like i can get three or four okay but (laughs) we start getting into the but like 10 like where where do we where do we say like this is just getting this is it's almost become self-parody in a way
2: yeah and and people are uh, at least in the muslim community they're getting upset at Uh, You know, Muslim young Muslims following Jordan Peterson, but then you see like some of the the ridiculousness of the the discourse and where it's going towards. Why wouldn't they? They see Jordan making so much sense on so many levels, and he's making things that are that were complex in terms of old philosophy and stuff, and he's kind of making things make sense to them. Improve yourself, improve your family, and then the work on others you know it's in a nutshell that's really what he's saying
3: i kind of feel that jordan peterson is like a classical liberal salafi
2: yeah
3: and i he takes very complex ideas and he's like hey, this is the way you do it. Like 12 Rules for Life, his book could be like a Salafi manual or something Ah. if it was about Islam,
1: I don't know. Do you recommend it?
3: I Actually, I haven't – I've I've read like little bits and pieces, so I can't really um, – some people – it's a bestseller, so some people like it.
2: You're friends with Murza Hussain. He just wrote a little tweet about it, and he kind of reviewed it actually. You know, yeah, from, from the Intercept, inter- from the Intercept, okay. yeah. right, right. Yeah, he wrote, he wrote a little review about uh, Jordan Pearson's book, and he said, you know, he's taking a lot of these, extracting a lot of these ideas from various biblical stories and all these different things, and he kind of um parcelled them into this book. And, and Mursa's only criticism, really, I think, well, I should save it for in case we can. Yeah, we'll interview we'll, him. We'll we'll call him on the show, and we'll 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 have him review um. Jordan okay. Peterson for us. I didn't know that Jordan
3: Peterson has a kind of young Muslim contingent of followers. Is that like a thing?
2: Yeah, they're mainly Mad Mom look listeners. <laughs> yeah, a lot of like Mad Mom because we're, we're we're
1: considered to be like people have labeled us like alt right Muslims, or like the alt bro, because we like question the fact that we question certain things, like like what Sheikh Amr mentioned. That the Muslim ban isn't necessarily the worst thing since bread. That statement because it's not totally in line with the SJW narrative of the Muslim ban we'll we get, we'll have us labeled as an alt bro.
3: Yeah, but he, so how do you guys deal with the fact that I mean, that Jordan Peterson seems to like some like a, like some of the folks in this in these circles seems to have a problem with Islam. So he's fine with kind of biblical stories and they think that Christianity serves a purpose.
2: And well, if you see his recent debate against Sam Harris uh or okay. I don't know if it was a debate, but it was just kind of rambling because it was so abstract. But they're not the, on the same page. It just seems like the the people who the left doesn't like they've they've like okay, well if you don't want to talk to us, then we'll go ahead and talk amongst each other. And uh, I don't think Jordan Peterson aligns with Sam Harris on many different levels. No, so I'll, I'll, I'll give you the even answer. Right? Maybe a little anti-Muslim, yeah. whatever the
0: case may be. Right. I still think he brings a lot to the table. Right. You know, and I, I'm not going to discard. And I, I actually appreciate his mind very much. I like uh, the points that he brings up. I like his traditional values. I like his point of, you know, people should be policing our language. And I, I, I like that. I like what he says. Now, even if he, let's just say he may even be anti-Muslim. As long as he's not saying anything majorly blasphemous, then he's not really going to
2: do enjoy it. listening to him. I, will I, to I him. try to figure out like coming, where is he coming from? What perspective? What are his, what's, what's him his, tick? yeah, what's his intellectual backbone? I mean, where is he operating out of, especially when you're talking to atheists when they, they're kind of really forming their own, uh, yeah. ideology in their mind and, and their rules of life. That's, uh, i'm always curious in that right engagement exactly i know one of our alt bro listeners actually said
1: answered this question he says basically like if he really um believed that we if he agreed with us he'd be muslim so of course as a non-muslim he's gonna have like certain doubts right so with that being said dr shadi we've got to like call this show at three hours i think because we uh have to play sure, yeah. <laughs> so uh, real quick, where can listeners find out more about you and, and how can they engage with you?
3: Yeah, sure. So they can find me on Twitter at Shadi Hamid. So my my name. And um, I, I tweet a lot, although I am trying to kind of cut down. It's getting, it's getting a little bit too depressing for me, but we'll see. Um, and if they want to find my books, they're available on Amazon and your local bookstores and all that. And if you want the full version of the arguments, that's probably the best place to look. And I also write regularly um, for The Atlantic, so you can find my Atlantic articles um, uh, on uh, my Atlantic page. Um, and the, I, I covers some of it, yeah.
1: Cool. Well, we, we appreciate do this again, it, man. We got to do this again. Yeah, because there's a bunch of questions that we couldn't even get to, um, because people send us a lot of questions. Like I said, there was a big push for, oh, up to the past year for you to come on. So really appreciate you coming through. We really um, hope you come on again. Um, I really
3: enjoyed it. I'd love to come on again. Thanks for having me. I'm kind of happy that I squeaked through this without having to talk about MLI.
1: <laughs> that was the next, that was, that was the last question. The question but like we're on 30 the, minutes ago, like we, clock. we it. He's like, Hey, can you, uh, if you don't want to talk about that fine, like later, but like he was like, she was asking about MLI. I'm like, yeah, but then we just went on this last subject. I'm like, Oh, we got to play usher. We, we can't like ask about MLI and then skip usher. Yeah. So like
3: cool. <laughs> that could be a fun thing for for another time. Yeah. Maybe,
1: maybe, absolutely. Well, uh we <laughs> again we really appreciate you coming through and we'll we'll, we'll talk soon. Sounds uh, good, my pleasure. Thanks yeah. a lot, guys. For our listeners out there, if you have any questions or comments, you can email us at the at gmail.com. You can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, give us a five star review for our special guest Shadi Hamid and my co host Sheikh Amir Saeed and Sim. This is Mahin signing off for the Mad Mum Looks. As